I begin by acknowledging that I'm recording on unceded Indigenous lands when I begin by paying my respects to traditional owners, past, present and everywhere. I am putting Aboriginal sovereignty first as an activist standing on stolen land. When I begin by saying that it always was and always will be Aboriginal land, I'm consciously choosing that sentiment over white supremacy, colonialism, neoliberalism and anything else that's setting us on fire or poisoning the planet. So just so you know exactly where I stand, that's how I begin the pork and feed the birds. Bullshit free. Once upon a time, there was a little girl who wanted to rule the world. Everyone called her Princessa. The mighty ocean spoke to Princessa, and she longed to travel to distant lands in search of new people and new experiences. So she embarked on a remarkable journey around the world. Australia, Europe, Alaska. Can you imagine? Marching deep into the great land, she raced the chariot pulled by mighty steeds, gasped as giants took their first step into the sea, and watched with glee as the ocean's largest creatures danced for her. In all her travels, Princessa found one thing to be true. One can rule the world. Explore the world with Princess Cruises, the world's number one premium cruise line. Thrice have we scaled the coasts of this miserable continent, waiting. Your scales crossed over with salt and spray. Ah, but you rest astern. I'm that shoreline, don't you? I see the fire in your eye, my king. Though the civvies off there think it extinguished. They grow tired of our contagion, don't they? They have forgotten us and our ruby princessa, haven't they? They have begun to fear the cafes closing more than us, haven't they? Ah, but you are proud, my pangolin king. Very proud. And I am proud of you, my king. Come, you are beautiful as your tongue is long. Come to me. There, there. Soon we will offload your viral burden, old salt. Soon, my king. Soon. Do you hear me, Australia? Soon! You do not ignite this change, we do! The Princessor is the agent of this change, oh yeah! Find your lockdowns, do it! Go back to your labour! Open it up, we beg you! We will have the day of our dreaded disembarkment! Do you hear me, Australia? 
curse is ours, but oh, it will be yours! So hear me, gods! The Princessa will disembark! And now it's time for me to record my little political podcast! This is the singer, real, 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 real bad. And people are stay in the house. People go on and do shopping, they see the fact that we zone. Quarantine. What they tell me, we cannot go party. Quarantine. And we can't touch nobody. Quarantine. They will we move like alien. Quarantine. Everything on lockdown. Quarantine. What they tell me, we cannot go party. Quarantine. And we can't touch nobody. The Pork and Feed the Birds is part of the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network. Um, it's a radio podcast network run by radical media makers. Um, what am I? I'm a radical media maker. I'm radical as fuck, dude. My name's Tom Tanneke. I'm your fucking host. And um, welcome to a massive episode 10 of the Pork and Feed the Birds. We will be speaking to Debbie Kilroy. Um, who started, I think, in 1992, Sisters Inside. Debbie Kilroy is uh, one of the leading advocates in Australia for protecting the rights of women and children and prisoners through decarceration. So we'll be speaking to Debbie about decarceration and about imprisonment and about her experiences with coronavirus. She did actually go through it in the earlier cases in Australia. Debbie's a legend. Another legend we'll be speaking to this episode is Jock Palfreyman. I'm sure that for many of you, Jock won't need much of an introduction, but for those of you who don't know, Jock was sentenced to 20 years in prison after he defended someone who was being beaten by a group of young Nazis in Bulgaria. He had his sentence commuted last year by the Court of Appeal in Bulgaria. However, he's now fighting for his freedom due, due to a series of technicalities and efforts by the state that we'll go into in our conversation. During his time in prison in Bulgaria, Jock helped to found and is the chairman of the Bulgarian Prisoners Association. And so that's what we'll also be speaking to Jock about. Imprisonment, incarceration and the rights of prisoners in Bulgaria and really all over the world because that's the theme, I suppose, of this episode. Prisoners, one group of people, one group of many who've been somewhat forgotten or swept aside in considerations through the coronavirus crisis. I've been looking at a group of people who seem to somewhat understand that there are groups of society who aren't being considered by the coronavirus crisis. They are conspiracy theorists. I've been obsessing over them somewhat over the past fortnight, and indeed I've engaged with them to a degree. If you follow my pages online, you will have seen a lengthy video I recorded about a pretty extraordinary series of TV smashings that took place. Uh, Australians smashing their TV and reading out some hammy declaration to the government that they rescind their vote at the behest of someone who was on an episode or even a whole season of Channel 9's Family Food Fight 
His name's Fanos Panayidis, and um, he's very cringe, but also really funny and quite charming and entertaining. I'm someone who's gone from looking at Nazis who really want to kill their fellow working class, you know what I mean, because their their skin colour or their sexuality or even their gender is different to theirs. Um, Going over to looking at these guys, they're a blend of anti-vaxxers, anti-5G activists, use the term loosely, really a, a, a QAnon conspiracy cookers, a whole bizarre little coalition of different kinds of people who are assembling and are increasingly forming to become a band of anti-lockdown protesters. Now, I see in them some merit because they understand that they're being swept aside and not considered by the government. But I think for every one of their um, their their paranoias and their conspiracy theories, there is something legitimate that they could be redirected to. And this is why I have some sort of hope for these people. Perhaps they don't understand that it's the neoliberalism and consumerism experiment that has everyone hell-bent towards individualism. There's really two different kinds of freedoms, I think, and I think that's coming uh, uh, very much to the fore when you look at these lockdown protesters. When they talk about wanting their freedoms back, particularly in America, I notice this, there's a certain kind of individually powerful almost belligerent freedom that they're talking about. They want their right to live their lives unimpeded or unimpinged upon by anyone else's considerations, even if that will affect the likelihood of others. However, communal freedoms at the moment do actually include a consideration of the health of others. So therefore, collective freedom right now does include learning about and understanding and honouring the medical nature of this crisis. So there's two different sorts of freedoms. And I think to really understand that, some of these people need to be deconditioned a little out of neoliberalism and made to think about life from the point of view of other people. I talked last episode about how the learnings uh, of people by now were so vastly different. The anti-5G activist by now in May has been reading such vastly different material to someone who's just been reading epidemiologists on Twitter for five months. That we're talking two different languages almost by now. The learning curve has been very steep. One of the ways that we can start to get people to think about collective freedom and to think about others is to think about more vulnerable and marginalised people than ourselves, I think, in periods uh, like this. And so that's why I want us to focus on people in prisons right now. If you appreciate this episode, if you enjoy what I do, I would love it if you would do two things. One is to share the episode around. Uh, If you could also give me a review on your favourite podcast platform. That will be amazing. That will hopefully uh, uh, boost me in the algorithms, and which I just love as a content creator. We live to be boosted in the algorithms. And um, given my political views, I'm often not boosted in the algorithm. So that would really, really help me. I would also love it 
if you are one of those lucky people in a position to be able to uh, spare a claim or two to support your fellow, your comrades, I would love it if you would chuck me a claim or two on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Tom Tanneke. That will keep me fed whilst I um, continue my ceaseless content creation. Anyway, let's play on with the episode. We've got a very long one, but we've got a very good one. I'm here with Debbie Kilroy. Debbie is one of Australia's leading advocates for protecting the human rights of women and children through decarceration. Debbie, thank you for coming on, mate. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, right off the top regarding prisons in Australia and coronavirus, we're yet to see a real outbreak of coronavirus in Australian prisons like in America, but, you know, it's it's only a matter of time, it would seem. I mean, if you look at, you know, at, at other countries, not just America, then it's only a matter of time. What would you like to see happen for inmates in Australian mm. prisons? Sure. Well, um, I suppose first I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which um, I uh, am an occupier on. I'm presently on Mianjin land, and so I want to acknowledge the elders of Mianjin, this country, um, past and present, and um, also acknowledge that I'm an occupier. I reside on Nornville land that runs through down to uh Minjerabar country. Um, and, you know, whenever you walk into our prisons here or New Zealand, well, anywhere, you know, Canada where there's, you know, the US where there's big populations or there, or there had been populations of First Nations people, Indigenous people, you see the outcome of the ongoing colonising project and that is the mass incarceration of uh, First Nations people. So I want to pay my respect um, to First Nations peoples. Um, it's interesting that, you know, your question is about, well, we haven't seen an outbreak here um, in any Australian prisons. Well, we don't know that because they're actually not testing anybody. Um, right. They've tested a few people that have come in contact with prison officers or the health workers or a program um, officer that works a correction, went into the men's prison and was found positive on the 7th of April. April. So that's the last person that we know that's tested positive. And yeah. then we see that some people in prison get tested who may have had contact with those people, but there's no broad testing. The only testing, you know, not like real testing, like um, the swab test. The only test that staff are getting, is my understanding from corrections, is um, a temperature test. And uh, people coming into prison who either been remanded in custody or sentenced or have been brought in because uh, a breach of parole and their parole has been suspended yeah. is, um, as far as I'm aware, getting their temperature checked. But, um, you know, having your temperature checked is not the be-all, end-all to say whether you have the virus or not. Like I um, had coronavirus, tested positive um, when I came back from the US, from New York, where it's running rampant there um, now and since um, I've come back. So from the um, 14th of March uh, when I was tested, you know, I was in quarantine for 24 days. So, and I still didn't get two negative tests. And in that whole time, I actually didn't have a temperature. Um, fever, well, I, I was freezing cold. So people call that a fever too. But when you think yeah. of fever, you think of hot sweats. And so I never had that. My symptoms were very different than the common symptoms that are, 
discussed in public by our leaders, you know, Prime Minister, Premier, etc., our chief um, medical staff. So the temperature test, test doesn't go far enough for me because of my own experience. And so yeah. I'm very concerned about what's happening in our prisons. And I wouldn't be surprised if there's already people in there that have the virus, but because they haven't been tested, it allows the prison industry to come out public and say, we do not have one prisoner with coronavirus. Yeah, which we've seen, you know, what what that sort of denialist approach has done in whole countries or on cruise ships and the like. I actually laughed the other day when I saw you in another interview, you compared them to cruise ships. But the, the comparison's apt, isn't it? It's the same situation. Yeah. The only difference is prison officers, you know, those employed by the prison industry can go in and out where a cruise ship is more contained. And when I was in hospital with um, COVID-19, there was two women that were brought into the ward that I was in um, who had tested positive to the coronavirus, a mother and daughter, and they'd been on the Ruby Princess, that actual ship, and they were told uh, the whole time that no one on the ship had the virus. Well, no one had been tested, but there was a heap of people downstairs in the bottom bowels of that ship that were really sick with um, the virus symptoms. So, you know, I still don't think that we're doing enough testing um, and I don't think that it's appropriate to alleviate um, the restrictions as yet because, you know, this virus spreads through humans carrying it and having that connection. And because I've been through it, so I know how bad it is. And, you know, there's so many thousands of people around the world that have died that I don't want to be responsible for actually passing a virus on to someone else and so their life is at risk or they actually die. Yeah, you know, we have a, our own individual responsibility to not spread the virus. Um, I understand people may feel uncomfortable because they can't go out and do what they usually do, but do you actually want to be responsible for someone else's death? I don't. No, no. Well, I understand um, that there's there's many people that the government could easily start in this situation by releasing to reduce populations like people in remand and such. Doesn't that account for, you know, a lot of people that they could take immediate steps on? Uh, there's, look, you know, at the end of the day, we are calling to free them all. It's an international yeah. campaign. Um, now, you know, people um, who respond and say, oh, my God, what about the rapists and the murderers, are clearly people that do not know who's in our prisons yeah. <laughs> and have no idea. And they've been captured and caught by the law and order campaign about who supposedly is in our prisons and that actually are not those people that are in our prisons. Um, I, don't, I don't like to pick off groups. You know, there's um, reformists who say let nonviolent people out. You know, well, you know, I know women, many women and predominantly Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women who have defended themselves from violence and they're the ones that get criminalised and imprisoned um, but because they've been charged with a violent offence, they would never be released in that context of that group of non-violence local um, offences. So, um, you know, it's about, uh, you know, we're all caught up in this capitalist world and part of this capitalist world it, to make it drive is also racism. Um, but also a component is about who's, who's the risky person and risk is not an identity. Yeah. Um, so it's about those uh, frameworks that have been developed in the capitalist world to keep uh, academics, to keep the prison industry thriving, um, that decides and courts, for example, who, who goes into the system who and when you go into the system and when you get out of the system is all based on this so-called risk assessment, these tools that have been developed. But as I said, risk is not an identity. 
the risk comes from the capitalist world that has uh, enforced us to become so individualized and where property is more value than human beings. And so the, the risk is in our community is the ongoing colonizing project and policies, um, racism, poverty, homelessness, you know, those with mental illnesses who've been criminalized, those that self-medicate with illegal drugs because they don't have the resources to um, deal with the trauma and so then, you know, they'll collide with the uh, criminal injustice system very quickly. They're the, risk, they're the risks and that is part of all the system. It's not an individual that's risky, um, but the way that we're deemed is as individuals are risky and it's actually everything around us that creates the risk. It's really pertinent to think about at the moment, isn't it? I, similarly, I read a, uh, something the other day regarding homelessness, which saying, which said that the capitalist world will never remove homelessness because the threat of homelessness is necessary mm -hmm. to continue to incentivize work. You know, and, and, mm -hmm. and in a similar way, there's sort of this threat of being in a risky population, like being, you know, losing yeah. that social capital in a capitalist world is almost vital to keeping people. You know, performing at, 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 in, in a capitalist framework. Mm. Um, what the virus has done is actually um, pushed governments to be more socialist aligned in the sense where they are providing um, the resources that the most marginalised need because some of the most marginalised groups um, are the people that we are relying on to stay alive. So, you know, Childcare workers, um, the garbage pickup people, the retail store, you know, food um, delivery, the you know, postal, all those workers that capitalism and big corporations have been trying to get rid of and remove and replace with modern so-called electronic technology. Um, but these are the workers that we are relying on, and, and that now what we're seeing is so many more have lost their jobs because of this virus that we see governments now propping them up, you know, double uh, new start, which is fantastic. And we need to actually hold the pressure, keep the pressure on governments that after this, that that continues. So people aren't living in absolute poverty. So that props up the most advantage, you know, um, where childcare can be free. Why can't childcare be free forever on? You know, yeah. um, if, you, if you're out of work, why can't you get a decent, um, guaranteed uh, minimum wage, you know, that's what we need for everybody so that we can level the playing field slightly so that we don't have so many people, um, you know, home, home, homeless and then uh, pipelined into the prison industry. Yeah. Debbie, you'd said earlier that this is not some question of, of, of temporary decarceration, certainly not in your case. You're not calling for that. It's for you. It's important. It's a conversation that's important outside of the pandemic anyway. So because because a lot yeah. of the work you've done is about reducing the circumstances in which women are incarcerated. Um, can you tell us a bit about the work you've done since, I think, 1992 with Sisters Inside? Sure. So um, 1992 was the, the last time I was released from prison through the prison industry <laughs> um, mechanisms, yeah. um, carceral mechanisms, so I was released on parole. Um, but prior to that, when I, my last stint in prison, um, my close friend got murdered sitting beside me and uh, so, you know, all of a sudden there was a spotlight on the women's prison here and really no one knew that women were in prison behind the men's prison in Old Bogger Road. And so it was actually quite um, 
people were horrified. So it made the front pages of not only, um, you know, the media here, but nationally and internationally that <clears throat> another woman in prison, <clears throat> excuse me, had murdered another woman in prison. Um, but what had happened was, you know, the prison system comes in, it's management, removes all the management, <clears throat> the day-to-day management in Boulder Road at the women's prison and put new people in charge. And it was, uh, I suppose, what we would call now in hindsight, it was hindsight, it was a um, window of reform <clears throat> where um, the Director General, like the Head of Corrections then, um, ran an experiment. Like, So he had an idea. So his experiment was to set up small committees around issue-based matters inside the prison and um, then... Um, those committees then their chairperson or the convener they were called could meet then with the general manager of the prison and other prison staff about um, discussing issues and concerns to have them resolved. So it's sort of like um, being part of the management of the prison but not having control of the management but being able to have those arguments and debates with um, the powers who uh, captured us to um, make life easier inside. So very fundamentally a very reformist agenda internally. But, um, you know, as women um, then and as women and girls now, uh, you know, we become, we become institutionalised from a very young age through the so-called child protection industry then right. through the youth prison industry and then the adult prison industry. So um, it's hard when anyone's in prison um, usually to be able to think outside the bars because you're just surviving while inside the bars. So... Um, Anyway, those committees were set up and then I was released. And then so the Life is a Long-Term Committee, um, you know, because I said I'd come back and I did come back um, and um, quite quickly back into the prison, but as a part of that committee and then um, Sisters Inside um, name came about and, and mm. that's where we started. So over the years, you know, um, we fundamentally um, have grown, um, I suppose, at not the same rate that, um, the prison numbers have grown mm. as the industry's grown, but we also we know that as we track alongside the prison industry, the bigger we get, we know the bigger the industry gets. So it's not something that Sisters Inside wants to be, and that is a big NGO. We mm. actually want to, don't want to exist because if we don't exist, it actually means that no woman is in prison yeah. or in a watch house or criminalised. So now I suppose to... You know, quickly, um, otherwise it will take us um, a long time for me to go through the story. But um, the way that I, I talk about it now is we have four arms of the organisation. So one is um, service provision and programs. And um, so, you know, we have staff in every prison at the moment with the virus. We have uh, free phone lines so women can ring us every day from every prison, women's prison, in this jurisdiction and speak to us. I was on the phones yesterday and had a number of women ringing me over a three-hour period. So it goes for three-hour blocks in the morning and then in the afternoon and and then the low-security prisons can go into, I think, uh, three to six at night. Um, So we have a lot of contact with women via the telephone now and now that emails are set up across all prisons um, Mm. in this jurisdiction, we can also email women and they can email us back. Now, they don't do it. We've got to send it to the email account that gets given to the woman, printed out, then she responds and then that's emailed back. So she doesn't have control. Everyone needs to calm down. People don't have um, 
internet connection to the inside the prison. You know, some people think that and have equated um, prisons to uh, hotels, you know, people staying in hotels for their uh, isolation as uh, being in prison um, solitary, which is so not. Anyway, that's another conversation. But, okay, so the second arm is law reform and advocacy, which is predominantly my job. So we do a lot of activism um, around laws, law reform, around policies um, and around um, the prison industrial complex activism. So um, people call it decarceration. Decarceration is can also be a part of the reform agenda, but for us it's about we use decarceration strategies to get to our end goal, which is the abolition of prisons. So it's a bit different. We're not talking about decarceration where then people who are released are criminalised and uh, where carceral mechanisms are net widened. So, you know, we hear people say, let everybody out and put the electronic monitoring on them, you know, which is basically an electronic prison on their ankle. We don't say that. We actually say let people out, support them when they're out and keep them out, not have another carceral mechanism that holds them in that net of the prison yeah. industrial complex. Um, the third arm is about community education and training. So we've developed a number of frameworks, uh, practice frameworks of our own and how we work and because we know how we work and our value base, um, how that's put in practice actually works for criminalising prison women and girls and their families. Um, so we do training around that. Um, and the fourth arm which is, uh, sits alongside Sisters Inside, is um, my law firm, Kilroy Gallagher Lawyers. So um, I have a criminal defence law firm that's actually based at Sisters Inside, but it's a separate entity because it has to be because of the law. Um, so we represent, um, you know, predominantly a lot of the women, a lot of the children um, and others, um, but we focus um, our main um, area of law that we practise in is criminal defence. We do do some child protection work because that goes hand in hand with women, mothers who are criminalised, you know, they take their children. So we support the mothers in regards to that through the court processes and then we will also um, assist or represent, um, stand alongside families who have had a loved one killed in the prison or watch house, you know, in custody. Yeah, yeah. And, Debbie, I'll, I'll be putting up links to where people can donate to the work that um, Sisters Inside does in the description notes for the episode. Yeah. Um, what can people do, you know, if they want to help with the, the, the subject aside from donating to Sisters Inside? You know, I mean, if people believe in decarceration, if they understand where you're coming from here, what can they do? I think people, you know, one of the things, it's about... Um, Sisters Inside is very much a grassroots organisation. So we were born out of those of us, a group of women who were in prison ourselves and then came out into the free world, those of us that could um, be released, were released by the industry um, and maintained the rage, if you like, out here in our organisation. But we always um, have had our management committee members driven by a group of women in prison who are actually in prison, and that happens still today. We have a group of women in prison that we meet with regularly. We can't at the moment because of the virus. No one's allowed in. But we stay in regular contact, whether it's through writing letters, emails, telephones, um, et cetera, phone calls. So, um, But we are very much a grassroots-driven organisation by women who actually are in prison and those of us who have been in prison. So, you know, for people, people need to get educated. You can't just um, 
I don't believe it. And I did it as a kid. We all did it. You know, we're so influenced by the media, the mainstream media, because we don't hear about any other type of media, yeah. um, valid media, like, um, you know, that actually can expand the argument about, you know, what's happening in the world and connecting the dots for us internationally. So yeah. it's about reading, you know, like there's this great little short book called Are Prisons Obsolete by Angela Davis, who's a mate of mine. You know, it's not that big, it's small. You can Google it, you can get it online for free, all the texts. Read that. Have some starting points, you know. Read um, what you can about the prison industrial complex. You know, there's some fantastic people to follow on social media that yeah. write regularly about that. Get educated, start having conversations, you know, with those that you are close to, to have a conversation about who is it that we actually criminalise and imprison and why is it that we do so. Um, you know, you can track, just as you can track in the US from slavery, the end of slavery through the Jim Crow era, you know, why the mass incarceration of black and brown people in the USA. You can do the same thing here since colonisation, that um, the... the uh, attempted genocide of First Nations people um, and the ongoing colonising project that, and policies that we see by the state, uh, territory and federal governments and even corporations and even NGOs for that matter um, that are fundamentally driven by racism and how we see the racism through the outcomes um, of those policies um, today. So about understanding those structural and systemic issues um, from colonisation, the invasion of this country. Talk to people that you need to talk to that have an understanding. If you've got questions, you know, everyone in the abolitionist movement is more than happy um, to have those conversations because we've all had them ourselves, you know. Um, and one of the biggest one conversation that we have on an ongoing basis is about the ending of violence, you know, and about anti-violence and, and mm. in that context, you know, where we know that the prison industrial complex is a violent place. It's a racist place. It actually facilitates the death of those that it contains in its cages. However, it's deemed as it's an individual that's suicided or it's an individual that got, you know, assaulted by someone else. But we don't actually talk about those structural issues, uh, you know, and also watch houses and how the police respond to people, particularly black and brown people, First Nations people, um, because of the fundamental racism that not only them as individuals, if they haven't unpacked their white privilege, um, you know, um, the structural uh, white privilege and ongoing colonisation policies continue. So have those conversations because we've all had to have them, you know, including yeah. myself. So when Sisters Inside started, we were fundamentally a reformist organisation because we were trying to fix up the things inside of the prison to make it better for women inside the prison. Yeah. Now, that's valid, but if you're doing it just to net widen or to maintain women and girls to stay in that system, then you're a, you're a reformist and that's, you know, can be negative in many ways. If you haven't thought through what it is that you're doing, your ideology in that sense. Um, if you're an abolitionist, you would actually undertake strategies very different to decarceration strategies to reach, um, you know, prison abolition. So. Yeah. And you can see the difference. And there's a lot written about that, um, you know, that you can access online. So it is about having those conversations and getting on board with campaigns with like-minded people, you know, like um, 
January last year, 2019, you know, I started the campaign Free Her, and that was to raise mm-hmm. money to pay for fines, um, to release Aboriginal mothers, Aboriginal women, women out of prison that were arrested for, for um, because of warrants because they couldn't actually afford to pay fines that they received through court matters. So, you know, if you had a, a fine in Western Australia and you couldn't pay it, a warrant is automatically um, issued and police will arrest you and put you in prison and you need to stay in prison until that fine is paid off. And we have seen many people, um, even more than in my lifetime, you know, Aboriginal elders, Noongar elders in um, Perth in Western Australia, I've met with them and they've told me about their brothers, you know, their sisters that have died in the prison system, you know, in the 50s, 60s, you know, like, and it still has happened, is continue to happen today. You know, we saw Miss Do's horrific killing in the watch house yeah. um, a few years ago. And so when um, young Reuben is a Noongar Aboriginal man, uh, Noongar man, uh, dance singer, cultural man, um, was arrested January last year just for walking walking while black and uh, police stopped him and uh, asked him his name and everything. He wasn't doing anything. He was just walking while black and uh, he was pulled over by the police and then they did a search on his name and uh, he had a warrant from some four or five years previously that he did not know about and so therefore he um, was taken immediately uh, to the prison. He wasn't allowed to pay it. He had the money to pay it but because he couldn't access that and they they took him immediately that hit social media that day and, and uh, you know, there was a number of us that got on social media straight away when we saw it, spread the word, raised the money and got him released. But and while so we were the, doing that... The Free Her campaign just has raised about, I think, about um, half a million dollars already. Is that, is, is that right? In the region? Yeah, I think I remember looking, uh, yes, like, yes, so it was about, yeah, 536000 I think, at the moment. Incredible, yeah. And that money goes straight to those warrants and such. Therefore, um you know, releasing, I mean, it must have released a ton of people from jail thus far. Well, there's been, uh, I don't have the numbers with me right now, but there's been a number of women that we've released. So we have the prison will ring us to say that the woman's in prison on warrants um, and uh, then we can pay them immediately. For other women, because we had to put the word out across uh, Western Australia through Aboriginal-controlled organisations, through word of mouth, um, you know, through elders groups, through the First Nations Death and Custody group, um, to for women to get in contact with us or their support workers to get in contact with us um, about if they thought they had warrants or about to have warrants issued. And yeah. so we would, uh, they would send or the women would ring us, contact us through Facebook, through social media, and then we'd contact the infringements uh, registrar and um, get the um, information um, accurate information from them about what the warrants are for, how much the warrant, you know, how much the warrant is, what we need to pay, the exact amount. And so we've been doing that and we've paid over 200 women's warrants already. Um, but we've still got about another quarter of a million dollars of warrants that we could pay. And, you know, the tragic thing about it is, you know, well, some would say that's why the system works because it's a capitalist system, yeah. is I remember a young Aboriginal woman who escaped with her three children. She was only 20 years old. She escaped from the northern part of Western Australia from a, a remote community um, from a violent partner and was in the Perth area. 
and she contacted me and she was uh, couch surfing because she had a warrant and she was terrified not of only being found by the violent partner but you know to go to prison and lose her children and we all know as women that if you go to prison and the state takes your children it's very very hard to get your children back um, sometimes impossible sometimes you never will because they use that um, criminalization and imprisonment against you in a court of law so that they can keep the children in their so-called state care um, but um, her warrants, when we'd contacted the imprisonment registrar, were about $8,000 over a period of years. Yeah. But the total amount she owed was, uh, you know, around $16,000. That's because of the fees that they'd added on, uh, fees and costs that they continue to add on each warrant. So, yeah, and so we try to negotiate. Can we pay just the straight out $8,000 for the warrants? It's like, no, you have to pay it. So here we have the state making in that case, near double the amount of money of what she actually owed, and she would never have been able to pay that ever in her life. Profiteering off of someone's continued imprisonment. It's incredible. And not only profiteering, you know, that they give it uh, the um, the debt collectors another five, seven million dollars or whatever it was, I can't remember now, that they were funded prior to that um, to actually chase the debts. Amazing. And they would send letters to women to say, if you don't pay this debt by this time, we will be informing the, sher informing the sheriff's office to, in to um, execute a warrant for your arrest. And so then women, that was just a flag to them of absolute fear and they would, um, you know, leave home, leave wherever they are or start travelling and staying at friends and families from couch to couch. So, um, you know, horrifying life. They've got to leave because... You know, you go to prison because of poverty. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, the, the the work that you do through Sisters Inside and its various programs is incredible. And again, we'll be um, asking that everyone uh, donate or at least look at the program. So I'll be putting that up in the show notes. But Debbie, you, finally, you yourself were among the earliest people, certainly that I know in in Australia, to contract COVID nineteen. And you saw it through. So, I, you know, I followed your Twitter updates about the, the process of your, of your illness and it sounded horrific. Uh, can you, can, are you better? How are you? <laughs> so I'm better. Um, yeah, it was an interesting process because I think myself and Nettery, well, myself, Nettery, who's a close family friend as well as uh, works at Sisters Inside. She runs all our um, youth programs here. And my son, we went to New York. I was speaking at um, a conference at Columbia University. Prior to leaving, you know, um, I had contact with all my close friends and colleagues over there um, that were attending the conference because we use it also as a way for a number of us to come from different parts of the world, you know, to um, plan our next campaign, you know, to have conversations about what's happening internationally and how we can move, um, you know, the abolition of the prison industry further. Um, they were all saying they hadn't heard anything, didn't really know what I was talking about, and, you know, which makes it fundamentally, fundamentally clear now in hindsight when we think about New York, yeah. you know, and how it was never talked about. And so um, that I went there. You know, I was at the conference for four days. Um, so I got there like the Wednesday. The conference started Thursday. I went through to uh, Sunday, had meetings, you know, Monday. Tuesday I was starting to feel nauseous um, and body aches. But, uh, you know, I, 
put it down to, I don't know, <laughs> just was feeling nauseous and body aches and had a slight headache. You know, we got on the plane on Thursday night to come home. By the time from New York to LA, I'd had a sore throat. And then from LA to Brisbane, when we landed Saturday morning, I was feeling um, unwell. Nettery, who was not sitting beside me, she was really unwell. Joshua, my son, he was fine. He didn't have any symptoms. Um, we got off the plane and um, there was a table at the airport that had some information. I stopped and grabbed that. Before I got off the plane, I was looking, you know, I turned my phone on when they said you can turn your phone on. And there was a number of messages, you know, and social media about Peter Dutton had been, um, had tested positive. Now he was sitting two seats in front of me on the flight going over yeah. on that Wednesday. And so the three questions on the health department site were, have you been in close contact, you know, in a confined space uh, with someone who's tested positive in the last 14 days? So the answer to that was yes. He was the only one that I knew and he was in two seats in front. I'm not saying he gave it to me. He can calm down. He's already been hysterical and been to the media. Saying so, De that sorry, Debbie, just to interrupt. You're not saying that. Is it okay if I say that? <laughs> well, I'm not saying that. You can say whatever you like. But, I mean, he's, even, he's even come out to the media and said, you know, that I was just trying to advance my agenda. It's like, oh, you know, what? I was answering the questions on your health website. But anyway, so that was one. The second question was, um, have you been overseas? It's like, yeah, I'm sitting on the plane and the tarmac. And do you have symptoms? Yes. <clears throat> so it said go <clears throat> get tested, right? So we get off the plane, picked up some information. No one asked us nothing, went through customs, we're out. I said to Nettery and Josh, he didn't have symptoms. So he decided he went home and stayed in quarantine for 14 days because he didn't have symptoms. Yeah. Nettery and I... Um, I rang my husband, Joe, and said, can you leave the keys to my car on the bonnet? Um, we're not coming in because we've got symptoms. Um, you know, by this time there was more chat about COVID-19. Um, so I got home, got in my car. Nettery and I drove to um, the Marta Hospital and uh, went there, went up the counter. They shuffled us away really quickly when I said we tested, uh, answered yes to these three questions. Um, give us masks, told us to stand in the hallway. Then they called us back after about 10 minutes to the counter and then they said, oh, sorry, we don't test on the weekend. You have to go home. It's like, yeah, oh. I ain't going home. Uh, my husband is nearly 60. He's Aboriginal and he smokes and his lungs aren't good. Yeah. I have a two-year-old granddaughter there. You know, we have family members. Nettery's father was at her house. He turned 60 as well this year. He lives on Palm Island. We didn't want to expose him to take this virus back to Palm Island, which is an Aboriginal community. Um, so we drove, left that hospital, went to the PA, and they um, asked us the same three questions, which we answered yes to. We were taken in immediately. Our vitals were taken, our temperature, et cetera, et cetera. And that's the first time we had the swab, the nasal and uh, throat swab. And then they told us we had to quarantine. So we talked to them about we had nowhere to go. Um, but then, see, my husband lives uh, in a small um, community most of the time, but he had been here on the mainland. <clears throat> and um, so uh, where he lives was empty, so we went directly there. And we stayed there for, that was a Saturday. Then um, on the Sunday they rang and told us we were both positive and that they would treat us in the community, that we didn't have to go back to the hospital. And so we were the first people that were treated in the community in that area and we had health workers from the local uh, medical centre come check us uh, three times that week and take further swabs 
Yeah. Um, but I was getting sicker, so by uh, and I'm also asthmatic, so that was the worry too for the infectious oh, disease doctor. Yeah, yeah. And myself. So um, what had happened was on the Friday, um, I had about an hour conversation with the infectious disease doctor at the hospital about what would be best to do because at this small remote community, um, you know, they don't have good medical services on the weekend or overnight. And, and if there, an emergency happened, we would have to call the helicopter, you know what I mean? So um, because there's, you know, no way to get, it's on an island, there's nowhere to get off it. So, um, so we decided um, between us and the doctor that we would come um, be admitted to the hospital. So then, they, then the issue was we've got to send, you know, get an ambulance over on the barge or get a helicopter. And I just said, oh, look, I'm sick, but I'm not that sick that I can't drive because if we, you know, we drove from the hospital to the house. We can drive from the house to the hospital. Yeah. And so we'd organise that so, you know, with, um, you know, the barge company and everything that we had no contact with anyone. I was very strict about that because at no time would I ever want to pass this on to anyone. And so we were very careful. So we, you know, drove on the barge, drove straight to the hospital and then was admitted. And so I was in the hospital then from that Friday through to the next Friday and I had undertaken a number of tests, blood tests, chest X-rays, um, you know, days when I was really, really sick and didn't think I was going to come out of it today. You know, the next day I'd feel okay and think that I'm coming out of it, then I'd crash again. And so it was a bit like a roller coaster ride. Um, then they said that um, we could leave um, but had to go into another 10 days of self-quarantine. Um, but we couldn't go home and they knew we couldn't go home. So, you know, they said that we'd have to stay in the hospital. But, I mean, you know, look, I didn't want to waste uh, medical resources, you know, yeah. hospital resources. So what we ended up doing was, and only because, you know, we have the resources, is that we rented an Airbnb. And uh, I spoke to the owner of the Airbnb and, um, you know, said that we were both tested positive and she was fine with that. She just wanted to know to get the appropriate cleaners in after we'd left. Yeah. Um, and so we were there from that Friday then through the Tuesday week away, so, I don't know, 12 days we ended up because, and we kept getting tested all the time and nurses would come, test us, take our vitals, you know, and then they'd ring with results. And so we were um, positive the whole way through. Natalie did have a negative on the Friday before we left and they came back the next morning on the Saturday to retest her to get the two negative tests so she could go home to Pipey, her daughter. Um, but the, the test that came back then was positive again. Um, so she had nine tests, eight positive, one negative. I had eight tests in total, and I never tested negative once. No, you, you were positive for a long time, about 25 days or so, weren't you? Well, when I when they uh, said that I could go home and that I wasn't infectious anymore, I was still testing positive. God. So I've never tested negative. And see, this is what the goalposts kept moving because <laughs> they'd say one thing and then it changed. But that's because the virus is new. They didn't know about it. You know, yeah. every day it was changing. So it was difficult in that sense. But, I mean, so um, the way that the doctor described it was like a mummy. If you dug up a mummy out of the ground, it would still have, you know, traces of DNA, but it's dead. And it's yeah. like, so we had traces of the virus, but it's dead and we weren't infectious because we were very clear and they knew that. That, there's no way we would ever go home um, to our family to infect them and put them, you know, um, their health, um, you know, at risk and or anybody else for that matter. So um, they said, no, you're fine, absolutely fine. So we were allowed to go home and then we 
we've been under the same, you know, regime as everybody else. And so, you know, if that's the case for you, who, you know, you had, as you said, you had the resources to be able to isolate yourself, to be an Airbnb, but people inside prisons would just wouldn't oh. have those facilities. So the, well, they don't even have the testing, let alone that, do they? No, that's right. And we know that all our prisons um, are overcrowded, all our maximum security prisons are all overcrowded across this country. So even if the prison industry wanted to practice physical distancing, they actually can't because they don't have the cells, if you like. You know, and I'm not advocating to build more cells um, <laughs> at no. all. No. Um, we need to release people as a matter of urgency. And, you know, if, uh, you know, it's really clear from the medical authorities about who the vulnerable groups are, and that's where we can start to remove all the vulnerable groups, including all the people on remand who are innocent, waiting for their day in court. Um, and that's 40, nearly 40% of the prison population. So th that's what's that? For, for, that's about, you know, 16, 17,000 people. And yeah. there needs to be support in the community to follow them. Um, they could be released straight up. Um, that could alleviate. And then, you know, allow other people, you know, Aboriginal people to be released, Aboriginal people over 50, people over 60, people over 70, those with respiratory and immune um, illnesses can be uh, released, pregnant women, women in there, mothers with their babies in the prison. You know, there's a number of groups that you could release very, very quickly um, and then release others. And the same resources could be utilised as the government is um, spending for those that are so privileged to be flying home um, from holidays or those on cruise ships to be put yeah. into hotels. We yeah. can use hotels here to put people in so that they're safe and secure and not at risk. We do not have a death penalty in this country, but we are actually um, stamping, really, endorsing the death penalty by not actually freeing people from prison. Debbie, I'm just so glad that you're better <laughs> because the advocacy work <laughs> yeah, you do, right, because the work that you do is so important. I'm so grateful for this conversation. Um, and Debbie, all the best and thank you so much for your time. No, thank you. Take care. Two or three weeks ago, I was walking. I was going for a walk. Yes, sir, don't worry, it was essential. I was going for a walk and I saw an old lady who was walking up towards me. We were approaching a T intersection. She crossed over the street and then she said to turn off down that intersection. So I couldn't see her anymore. I thought she got, didn't really think much about it, to be honest. I'm walking up and as I get to the corner, I realise she hasn't actually left at all. What she's done is she's just rounded the corner. She's waiting for me to pass at a distance of about two or three metres away. And I look at her and she's looking at me with a 40,000 megawatt glare. She's fucking furious. And I recognise this look in her she's 
she's convinced that I have the coronas and I'm therefore her enemy because <laughs> I'm getting in her way with all my coronas and she's looking at me like I'm an active patient zero walking around gaily spreading the coronavirus everywhere I go. So my, I can detect this, I could. I looked back at her and I immediately giggled because I thought the ferocity of her glare was quite funny. It immediately made me start laughing. And that made her glare even more. I think I heard a loud, loud tutting noise from her. Anyway, I started crossing the street. Once I was at a safe distance, let's say about five to 10 meters away from her, she then rounded the corner and she continued walking along. Well, that was the first time I saw her. I then saw her uh, yesterday and I was walking through my local park. I was looking on my phone, like the Corona Gronk I am. I was going for a walk. Yes, sir, yes, officer, it's essential. <laughs> and I was looking at my phone while I was going, spreading Corona all over my Corona phone. Awful Corona Gronk. I look up from my phone and there's a woman who's very dramatically it has done a severe turn off the pathway and is walking about three to four meters away from me off to the side of the path and making a huffing noise. I look up and it's the same lady and she's going, oh, She's cleared three to four metres of distance between her and I. The same woman is from the tea intersection. And she's fucking glaring at me now with an 80,000 megawatt stare. And I, this time I started laughing. I laughed even harder because I recognised her and I knew Every day since I'd last seen her, this person has been out doing this to everybody she's seen. Policing everyone's presence, deciding that it's all non-essential, convinced that everyone has the coronavirus. Can you imagine what she'd be like online? Can you imagine the lecturing about flattening the curve? How stupid everyone else is. I'm imagining her calling her family members afterwards going, oh, I saw this fucking bastard today. I definitely had the virus. I could see, look, the little pale in the face. I could see him. He definitely had it. And he just, he was walking along that path. He refused to get off it. And I knew, and I looked at him. He knew I knew that bastard. Anyway, I've been dealing with a lot of anti-lockdown activists, but I have to say, I hate that one woman more than I do all of the anti-lockdown activists put together. What a world, hey? Everyone, I'm speaking to Jock Palfreyman, the legend. Jock, thank you so much for coming on, bro. 
Cheers, no worries. Where are you and what are you doing right now? Tell me. I'm in the Republic of Bulgaria uh-huh. and um, I'm, of course, like everybody else, um, uh, you know, keeping my head down from the from this virus thing. Everything's shut down anyway, so there's nothing, there's nothing more for me to do anyway. But yeah. uh, at the same time, uh, just keeping my head down uh, with regards to the virus, also um, running with other people, the Bulgarian Prisoners Association. Because actually, right, um, it's kind of like uh, for a lot of people, uh, they lost their jobs and they have less work and things are slowing down. But for um, a lot of human rights lawyers, activists, NGOs, uh, the work has actually increased because the the violations of human rights um, and violations of people's rights, civil rights, uh, have increased. Right. What <laughs> level of lockdown are you guys under over there? I mean, are you uh, is it similar to sort of what you understand about Australia? I mean, are you allowed to leave? Is it like an essential services thing? Or? No, it's nothing like Australia. Um, it's no, it's not at all essential services. It's um, no workplaces have been shut down except for places where people gather, like in public, so like restaurants, cafes, and clubs, and these types of things, uh, cinemas. So, any social venues they have been closed down, so those workplaces have been closed down. But, like, I mean, it, it, it's kind of odd in a way, but like factories are not closed down, yeah. Um, uh, farms are not closed down. Um, lots of things are not closed down. Like it, it basically uh, in Bulgaria, um, just every day from the beginning of the epidemic in Europe or in the world or whatever, it's just every day just some different message, and everyone's really confused and no one really is understanding what's happening. Like I mean, it 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 one at one stage the. There's a general here who's um, speaking for a like a, a panel of experts, and they are the ones who are supposed to be advising the government on on what measures to take. And in the beginning, he said, "There's no point on wearing masks uh, unless you're sick." Um, yeah, right. And then, and then, like I don't know, like three weeks later or a month later, I don't know, I don't remember the time frame but like a month later he said uh um now uh, uh, oh one journalist asked him uh in other countries they're making it compulsory for people to wear masks and he said something like um uh will any do anything you want that will make you feel better you know like he was just saying it's a it's a placebo effect so we don't need to wear masks and then like a week after like a week after that they came out with a with an order that everybody must wear masks and i think the order came out about eight o'clock in the morning and then at five o'clock in the afternoon they had repealed it uh, because no one had masks not no one but many people didn't have masks so so uh masks are stupid uh we don't need them then everybody must have them then we don't need them then a couple of days after that they brought the order back that everybody must wear something over their face just but it just i think it's really um I mean, like people already don't have very much faith in the in the Bulgarian state, but it's definitely not helping when the people who are supposed to be um, like leading 
the communities are yeah. themselves giving contradictory statements, like literally within a 24-hour time frame. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's lunacy, man. Well, you've got this denialism in the middle of it, like you see in America with Trump. You know, he, he would like to believe that it's just not happening to the degree that it is. That what you've described is a denialism on the way in. And, you know, actually in Australia, it's on the way out because they've they kind of flattened the curve but they really want everyone to actually get back to work right away. But that's, yeah. we already know by now that that's going to create more problems, you know. But we're all supposed to sacrifice ourselves at the altar of the economy. Like, there are other things that are, there are other problems as well here, not just the economy. For example, for, I think for about a week, they, the police blockaded the, um, the Roma suburbs in Sofia. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so, so they, this was another contradiction, some more contradictory information that came from this panel. Um, they said, uh, uh, first they said, uh, somebody said, I don't remember which one of them it was, but it was some government official said nowhere in the world is doing, uh, testing of civilians, nowhere in the world. <laughs> and then came up came up, I mean, it was on the TV that they were testing people walking on the streets in, in France. Yeah. Uh, it came, it, it was in a, I think it was a ABC article that they have a drive-through testing, um, you know, yeah. station yeah. somewhere, you know, in, in, in Australia. I don't remember the details, but like, like we, we ha- you know, we have internet guys, like we're kind of connected to the world now. Yeah, we can and read things. Government. Yeah, government official. I mean, their videos, their videos of, um, I think it was France. There were um, uh, like um, people with uh, biohazard suits swabbing people walking past them in the streets in France. Yeah. Um, and I and I think also in South Korea, there are like testing booths. You can go and get yourself tested whenever you oh, want. Yeah, South um, Korea is among the best for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, 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 well. The news we had here from the from some representative of the state was uh, nowhere in the world is doing this. <laughs> yeah, that's why I shared on my Facebook page um, yeah. uh, the 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 photo of the drive through testing, and and I I wrote the, the post in Bulgarian just like <laughs> um, just to oh, show no, people over here. It's a Photoshop job. <laughs> yeah, it was a Photoshop made by uh, made by Soros and, yeah, the, and the reptiles. Correct, correct. The reptile, the reptiles, and the and the and the the, the reptiles working for Soros, Dude, um, together with it's... the Illuminati and the Masons, they Photoshop it. Thank you. Finally, we're getting some truth on this podcast. You know? Yeah, they're we're turning not... the frogs gay. <laughs> should, I start, should I start smashing stuff? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why I just brought you on here to talk conspiracy theories for the next half an hour, bro. Um, Chuck, look, first I don't, I don't have a, I don't have a tin hat, but I can wear, uh, I can wear my coffee cup on my head. Yeah. <laughs> But, but I want to go back to the Roma. I want to go back to the Roma problem here. Yeah, so, please. so first they said. So first somebody said, like, I don't want to be sued for libel. So I don't. I don't remember specifically who it was. It could have been the prime minister. Um, but somebody said. Somebody said nowhere in the world is doing um, random testing. And then, uh, and I was like, what? Um, I think almost everywhere in the world is doing random yeah. testing. Yeah. Um, and then the, and then the, then they, and then like after a week, they started random testing, so-called random testing. And what did they do? 
they went to the Roma suburb in Sofia and started so-called random testing. Uh, just Roma people. Ah, uh, really? And uh, so, who were they excluding? Everybody else. <laughs> so they went to a, a, a suburb that is predominantly Roma. They tested them there, and then they established some statistic, like two thirds or one quarter or something. Some some high enough percentage of people were infected, and they said, "Okay, now we're going to quarantine the Roma suburbs." These two, there are two suburbs which are like famously, notoriously, infamously, whatever you want to say, they are known to be the suburbs of uh, ethnic Roma people. Yeah. And so they tested, they tested, they they only tested people there. Apparently, um, uh, yesterday, a journalist asked the, um, the 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 panel. I think it's a medical panel who is advising the government. And every morning they have a briefing at eight o'clock in the morning. And yesterday, a journalist asked them. Okay, you tested the you tested the people in these suburbs, yeah. this, the Roma suburbs. You tested them. You established that they had a high percentage of of infection. That's why you blockaded them. Mm. So what is so so what is the comparison between the positive um, infections in uh, the uh, the infections in the Roma suburbs? What is the percentage compared to the other suburbs of Sofia, which of course are the like suburbs, which are not known to be Roma, they're ethnic Bulgarian or mixed or whatever. Uh, and uh, the medical panel ignored the question, didn't answer it. And, and as far as we know, as far as we have the information, listening every morning to the, to the news from the medical panel that is meeting with journalists, as far as we know, the, the, um, the, the, the state only tested people from the Roma suburb. We don't. We don't know if they tested people from other suburbs. We don't know if they. I mean, like uh, non-Roma, so ethnic Bulgarian suburbs. We don't know. And um, some of my Bulgarian friends, they were they were shocked at this. Ethnic Bulgarian friends, I mean, um, they were shocked at this because they said, if you came to my suburb, which is ninety nine point nine percent ethnically Bulgarian, and you tested people here, we would probably have the same or higher percentage of uh, of infection than the than the Roma suburb. Of course, that's just people speaking, you know. But yeah. but as far as we know, when when the medical panel was asked, what is the what is the comparison between the Roma suburbs and the other suburbs of Sofia? Uh, there was no response, and I think the subject was even changed. And I think um, the blockade is ended now. But the but they but the police surrounded the Roma suburbs for for maybe ten days, for about ten days. And 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 if you're a Roma worker, no, all workers in Bulgaria are allowed to go wherever they want. Uh, but just specifically for those two suburbs are some of the only places in all of Bulgaria where they where they said you're not allowed to leave your suburb to go and work or to go and shop in some somewhere else. So uh, you can be in any, any other suburb in Sofia and you can travel across the entire city without a problem, without meeting police, without asking, without police checking your documents or your information or something. But mm. just if you're in this in these two suburbs, uh, when you try to leave the suburbs, you try to go to a supermarket or a shop or you try to go to work, uh, there's a police blockade. And and this is um this is ba basically unprecedented I think in maybe in Europe I think yeah yeah it's just lunacy and state authoritarianism and madness all around the world you know well, it's really scary because it it just it brings back the the fear of 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 you know 1930s Germany where um of course yeah. uh, 
where 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 they started herding people into ghettos. Um, and uh, uh, I mean, there was one, there was another village that was um, put under quarantine. No one was allowed in or out of the village. And um, a, an ethnic Bulgarian, he went on on TV. And he said, "We are white. Why are we are un- why are we under quarantine? We're white." Oh. Jesus, man. You see, you know, you've got the medical nature of the crisis itself, but then you have the, 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 the authoritarian bent that states are taking, not just there but all around the world to varying degrees, off the back of it. And, you know, and, and, and this is why in the discourse I find it so hard, you know, people tend to shut down people questioning the authoritarianism by going, well, no, you need to stay at home. But there's a medical crisis here. We are concerned about the authoritarianism. You know, there's two separate issues at play, you know? Yeah, of course. Yeah. And 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 that's also a major problem for Bulgaria because they have been arresting and charging people who are speaking against the measures. So if you say, if, a, if somebody says the measures are stupid, then they don't work or something like that, uh, the police call you or come to your house or they call you to the police station and they give you an indictment. If you they say you're, that you disagree with it. Yes, yes. They are punishing people uh, for their for expressing their um, uh, right to free speech. Oh, wow. Uh, there, was, there, was one, um, there was one capitalist, and he uh, spoke against the quarantine measures. He said he, um, he also made a little bit of a mistake because he actually admitted to <laughs> some type of crime. He's, he he <laughs> boasted on his... He boasted on his Facebook page that he went around the blockades. So there was one city that was cut off, and and there was um uh, there was such a high percentage of infected people that they cut off the city. And he boasted on his Facebook page that um, he was able to avoid the police checks, and he got out of there without a problem. Yeah. Uh, so he got one indictment for that for for admitting on his Facebook that he committed a crime. Uh, and then the second the second indictment he got was that. Yeah, the second part of his post was that he said that the measures are stupid and um, or they don't work or something like this. Yeah. And um, that was the second indictment that they gave him. Um, there was also a, um, a um, she was a leader of a, she's the chairwoman of a pharmaceutical um, uh, workers union. And uh, and she said she said in an interview something like um, I'm paraphrasing, but she said in an interview that Bulgaria uh, doesn't have some forms of medicines that the Bulgaria has a problem with supply of yeah. some medicines, and she was arrested straight. She was arrested after that and given in, an indictment, and um, and they and uh, I think she was released on bail with some crazy high, like we're talking like in Australia maybe like fifty years of of wages she I, like like the bulgarian equivalent you'd have amazing. to work for 50 years yeah. without so she was released on bail and then um thankfully after that the, the she appealed the the bail and after that the court said no bail you can go you can go free and wait for your trial um without bail um uh but yeah it's a little bit crazy over here there was a group of um medical workers i think they were nurses and they said on tv in the in the you know the, the tv crew rocks up and the tv crew asks them do you have masks do you have um uh protective gear safety gear blah 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 and they said no we don't we don't have this we don't have that we there's not enough blah blah and they were complaining or not even complaining they were just telling the facts as they were and the next day, the police tell them, "Come down to the police station. You, you're all, um, you all have to write explanations why you said this." Oh, what is this? 
And, and, and I'm going to say something controversial because um, like a lot of people um, in the West, in Australia, in, in the West, a lot of left people, especially, they go, they, you know, they'd have their own things to say about it. But um, like for a lot of people here in Bulgaria, the, the rights and freedoms and transparency of the states in the West um, is something that people are trying to work towards. <laughs> um, yeah. And and um and these are also like some ironies like some arrogance from bulgarian leaders um political leaders and uh state leaders bureaucrats and these things like for example a month ago um when uh, a month ago when uh people were complaining that there were not enough masks people were saying that the state should pay for masks that the state should pay for disinfectant um that the state should be doing more and one of the replies of one of the state bureaucrats was that um oh in germany doctors buy their own masks and uh and safety you know hazmat gear and just the arrogance of 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 these people it's like well hello like why do you think bulgarian doctors quit bulgaria they quit working here and they go work in germany because yeah. there they're getting paid like you know hundreds of thousands of euros uh a year and here they're getting uh like not even five percent of that yeah so yeah. just the, the, so so when it's like this so and they use this double dual standards to compare bulgaria to other countries and they cherry pick so so um bulgarians are bad uh wanting the state to do more for them because look at the german doctors they pay for their own masks which are like a mask in germany is like what um you know like a couple of cents and, and and he's getting he's getting big big uh, money compared to the wages in bulgaria uh and then um uh, uh, and then uh, just the other day um uh, oh i think it was today or yesterday uh, there was a report that the german doctors were protesting that they didn't have uh, enough um uh, safety you know masks and clothes and 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 things so um uh we get this cherry picking from the state that um uh bulgarians are bulgarians are arrogant for yeah. for demanding that the state does more uh and, and at the same time uh uh and at the same time we're being told here that uh bulgaria is one of the best countries in in the region or one of the best countries in the world and it's it's um it's handling everything fine yeah let's see Jock, can i ask a bit your specific Situation, which you know, most people know about, but of course, you're now out of prison after over a decade behind bars since last year. I mean, you're a commuted, but you, you, you've got parole, but you still need to go through this drawn out release process, which is being held up by travel bans and it's being contested. I understand you've taken legal action against the government. Held you in during your appeal. How are you holding up? And you know what's happening with you now? Uh, yeah, um, a, a, a common misunderstanding is that people think that I'm on parole or something, and and this is a, a problem with translation. Okay. Um, I, I was not given parole. I was given early release. So right. some people think that, um, like uh, I've heard, I've seen some comments on social media and things like this. Like, um, oh, if Jock was on parole in Australia, he wouldn't be allowed to leave either. Um, uh, but I'm not on parole. Um, I was. I, we asked for parole. Me and my lawyer. We asked for parole, and the judges said we are so convinced um, that you're not a threat to anybody, that you're not a threat to society, um, that we are not going to um, uh, give you parole. We're just going to release you. Um, 
Yeah, and um, and then after that, the head prosecutor's office, um, uh, and, and actually this is part of the report that's going to Europe, is that this was a completely politicized move from the head prosecutor's office. Mm-hmm. The the request that the head prosecutor has given is completely false, uh, and uh, the request is is that my early release wasn't according to the law, uh, and they've they've like they've. They, they, I think they've done it for two reasons. One, either to um, confuse Bulgarians to make people th- here think that that the prosecutors are the heroes and the judges are the bad people, even though the prosecutors have given a request that's fake. It can't, yeah. it can't legally be uh, actualized. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I gave someone a, a I, 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 I was trying to explain it to someone the other day. Um, it's like, it's like you tell your friend, uh, I'm going to go buy um, a hamburger. And you go to a fish and chip shop and you and you say, can I have a hamburger? And the, and the guy looks at you and says, no, we don't make hamburgers here. We only have fish and chips. And you say, oh, okay. And then you come back to your friend and you say, I, I, I tried to get you a hamburger, mate, but uh, they didn't have any. <laughs> this, is, this is the way I'm explaining it to people. So, so this is the way that the prosecutor's office is lying to the Bulgarian public is that they give these fake documents, these fake requests, these fake charges, they give fake charges. And then what happens is the media goes crazy. Yeah. This is another major problem in Bulgaria is that a lot of the justice here is ran by uh, the media. And so in Australia, um, uh, Australia, New Zealand, Britain, I know of those countries at least, it's illegal to speak about cases in the media, right? It's illegal to mention names. It's illegal to mention details yeah. and things like this. Um, New Zealand, I think, has even the strictest laws about this. You're not allowed to even write the per, the, the person's name anywhere online or something like that. That's right. Um, well, they can apply and, for you know they can apply for um, orders to suppress that information. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, like, whilst whilst there's an ongoing trial, sure. you're not, the idea is is to to have an objective trial to give the person a fair go. Yeah. Um, the evidence is to be looked at within a um, uh, a criteria of what is evidence and what is evidence, what isn't evidence. But the media doesn't have this, so they can just do whatever they want, mm-hmm. and then that then influences the trial process. And and that's exactly like for anyone who like. In, a, in in the UK, there was some right wing nutters who were going out to defend some right wing guy because he kept he kept making posts and about um, I think on his blog about um, some uh, uh, um, some men who were charged with rape, and then uh, maybe you know about this guy. He was I don't know, I, I try not to remember their names. Yeah, I know. <laughs> they're not they're that memorable, are they? Yeah, yeah. So. So, so this idiot was going. This idiot was kept publishing on his blog information about the case, and then he got himself arrested and charged because they warned him so many times, "Shut the hell up!" Because we have a trial going here, and then all these idiot right wing fascist racist idiots come out and and start defending him and say, "Oh, this is an attack against free speech." Well, yeah. and they're defending the rapists. They're defending rapists. Well, hang on a minute. The, if this idiot writes something that gets him a mistrial. Uh, or or uh, uh, because they because this idiot has influenced the, the jury and influenced the the, the trial. Uh, this these idiots are the ones who are going to free the rapists, not not the state, not the ones who are trying to stop you from 
speaking about it. So That's right. Um, they had no understanding about the legal system. I remember that situation. They were basically, I mean, well, Tommy Robinson was basically doing the pedophile's job for them. Like, if he had continued to do what he, you know, <laughs> it, it, it would have allowed these people to walk free, you know? Nothing, I mean, nothing would have made them happier. I, I don't know if they were convicted or not. I don't know what happened with the trial, but just it's so ironic. Like, and, and, and I mean, um, if, if, if they were convicted, nothing would have been better for them to have actually paid Tommy Robertson said, please continue speaking about our case so we get a mistrial and we go free. Absolutely. Um, I, I mean, maybe he was paid. Who knows? Um, but, uh, oh, I wouldn't be surprised. Come on, they're all mercenaries. Oh, bro, um, I wouldn't be fucking surprised either. Let's get into some real theories, hey? Not well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but so Bulgaria is a really good example of why those laws are completely important, very important, because here you get the complete opposite. Um, there are even judges, they, they tell the person who's indicted, they tell them to their face, look, mate, uh, I, I would love to give you three years for, for this theft that you did, or, or I think you should get five years or something. But look at the media outside. Look at the, look at the cameras. How can I give you uh, three years? Here you go. Here's 10. Incredible. And so, uh, so what's happening in Bulgaria is that we're getting, um, it, it, I don't think it's anything new. I mean, it's definitely not new for me. It happened to me in 2007 and 2008 for, for my five years of my, my criminal trial for the fight with the, with the, with the 13 from the uh, football Nazi group. Um, yeah. So it's, it's nothing new in Bulgaria, but um, it's, uh, I, think, I think this is, and, and another problem is, is that in Bulgaria, the, the prosecutors just are, I mean, I mean, again, a lot of, a lot of people critical of their states and governments and justice systems in the West, in Australia, uh, in Western Europe, they're, they're going to be a little bit angry with me. But there is such a difference between <laughs> the pro prosecutors in Australia and yeah, Germany yeah, yeah, yeah. and the UK and here in Bulgaria. Here, the prosecutor, he comes out dressed like a gangster. Like <laughs> he, wears, he wears gangster hats and gangster coats. He comes out like they, they really... The, the prime minister here, I think he was educated through watching the Godfather movies. He literally <laughs> imitates. He literally imitates the voices, the voice, and the um, the mannerisms um, in the Godfather movie of the whoever the um, the the the, you know, really? the the father is. Yeah, and he wears the same clothes. They wear the bowler hats. They wear the caps. You know. They're wearing sunglasses, and they're all cool and everything. Um, and it, it's. Um, it, it, and uh, um, and the prosecutor comes out on the TV and he says, "We arrested, we arrested the murderer. We arrested the murderer, um, and we got, the, we we found him with these things, um, and, uh, and 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 this and this and this. We arrested the thief. We um, we arrested the guilty guy, uh, the mm, guilty guy. Okay. <laughs> and and like you just can't imagine that the prosecutor here he acts like." He acts as judge, jury, and executioner all, all together. He and he's he's even said that he he's even the head prosecutor of Bulgaria. Um, it was even reported that he said um, he doesn't believe in the um, separation of powers. So you know, it, I mean, he he, uh, he I think he really wants to have some type of. Um, I mean, Bulgaria has been referred to as a prosecutor's dictatorship. Um, right. And probably, and probably that's probably the way Bulgaria is going, um, even more so. So it was bad for the last, you know, term of office for the last head prosecutor, yeah. and now and and things look even more cheap because 
the last prosecutor, you, he was very, um, he, he was more careful about um, what he said on TV. And this prosecutor now, this head prosecutor now, he's like a plastic version of the last one. So you're, and you're still up against all this, even on your way out, aren't you? Exactly, yeah. And 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 I'm I'm uh, again like they're trying to trial me in the media. It's a it's yeah. a um it's a type of uh and, and I mentioned this before, and my my lawyer said this in court. Uh, although he said this to the media, although Jock um, is a is a lefty, uh, he doesn't like the people's court. So the people's court in Bulgaria is very infamous. It was it was after. Um, after the Soviet Union occupied Bulgaria after World War II. And it's very infamous for the fact that they just got a bu- basically a, a bunch of neighbors who um, were pissed off with one another, start, started to denounce one, one another and, and get their neighbors thrown in prison or have them executed so that they could steal their uh, gardens, you know? Right, yeah. yeah. Uh, and and, and um, basically the, the people's courts, the people's courts in Bulgaria were uh, a, a courthouse full of hysterical people shouting and shouting, death, death, put him in prison, 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 death, death. And the judge didn't really care about any of the evidence and just signed paper and off you go to prison or off you go to um, death sentence. And, uh, and, and this, was, um, this is exactly what they were doing to me last year. The, um, which, and it's also double ironic because the leaders of this were the far-right parties, the Bulgarian Socialist Party, um, the VMRO Party and the Attacker Party. They organized public protests in front of the courthouses demanding that I be returned to uh, prison. And, and I mean, if there are laws, how can you be making a protest to pressure the judges into doing something other than what is the law? That's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, but at various times during your imprisonment, job, you were subjected to some fucking unspeakable conditions, you know? these interviews with you in which you are talking about the conditions you were you know cramped filthy far too many other inmates during your 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 imprisonment not good enough at any time but you know now with a pandemic people in conditions like that in prison in bulgaria um, potentially you know what what's conditions like inside prison in Bulgaria, and you know, have the authorities done anything about the risk of coronavirus in prisons? At the end of the day, like I mean, um, at the end of the day, I think, I mean, the so-called measures that they've taken uh, can only be called superficial at the best. Okay. Um, they gave like one bottle of disinfectant to every cell uh, over a month ago, and no more disinfectant has been given. Okay, so that's nothing. You yeah. Know, yeah, it's nothing. In some of the prisons, they started throwing, um, I don't, I've forgotten what the English word is. It's a white powder. It's like chlorine. Bleach. Um, yeah, I, I don't, I've forgotten. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've forgotten. The English <laughs> chemical term. I, I, I know the Bulgarian, it's called VAR, Klornavar, so it's something to do with chlorine. Okay. Um, and uh, they use it on trees, you know, to stop insects eating trees. I don't know if you know what that right. is. Right, yeah, okay. And uh, it can be used as a disinfectant, but it's not, it hasn't been used as a disinfectant <laughs> for like, I don't know, hundreds of years. I don't know, maybe. Yeah, we stopped it. It's a bad idea. Yeah. It's a bad idea because it's a dangerous chemical for people to be breathing in. 
Yeah. And so it's it's a powder, and they threw this powder around some of the prison corridors and some of the more and some of the general areas. So guards and staff and prisoners have to breathe in this chemical because it's a it's a powder. So it 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 becomes a dust when you're walking around in it. Oh, and man. so so yeah, it, and it kind of it kind of reminds me of this whole thing about um. Uh, you know, uh, allegedly Trump, I haven't seen it myself, but allegedly Trump telling people to drink um, disinfectant, like it's like in Bulgarian prisons, let them breathe disinfectant. That'll, yeah, that'll, that's, you know, that's, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And um, so, so in some of the prisons, they threw around this uh, white chlorine based chemical around, um, uh, which now everybody's breathing in. Um, uh, there are reports from some of the prisons that uh, uh, the, the guards are not wearing the masks that they've been taught to wear. Um, there are other problems where the guards are searching people. They're doing body searches and they, they don't change their gloves. So they, they're searching everybody um, with the same gloves, which is, of course, how you're spreading diseases. But they're doing this even before the epidemic because they're too lazy also, yeah. because the, the prison authorities, they steal the money. So there's no money for gloves. So instead of having, so for example, 100 people pass one checkpoint a day, they'd have to have 100 pairs of gloves, which yeah. costs money, which they don't want to spend because they're stealing it. Yeah. Um, so they'd rather uh, kill everyone. Yeah. So, well, um, so these, these practices are continuing. They haven't stopped because of the epidemic. No. Um, yeah. Uh, they're making searches, wearing one pair of gloves, searching the entire room with one pair of gloves. So, so um, even if you can, even if as a prisoner you can try to keep some distance between you and the other person in the cell, which itself is almost impossible because you're you, you're sharing the it's a communal space. The guards are going into one cell with the same pair of gloves and going to another with the same pair of gloves and another, and they're they're searching everything and touching everybody, and um, and, and one of the problems with that is that what the guards don't understand is that it's their problem as well, because if prisoners get sick, it's a question of time before they get sick because we're sharing the same space, but yeah. um, it's very short-sighted, very short very short-sighted mentality of the prison authorities. They think that, Oh, let the prisoners get sick. Um, just as long as we're okay. We have gloves. So we're okay. The problem is, is that, uh, if today a prisoner gets sick, tomorrow the guard is going to get sick. He's not wearing gloves all the time. He's wearing gloves just during the searches. So if if a prisoner gets sick, he then goes and touches a, a door handle. And then the next day, the guard touches the same door handle. He's going to get sick. Of course. Um, there are prisons in Bulgaria that don't even have running water. So um, oh, the, prison, the prison Krimikovsky in Sofia, the cap, a European capital, um, they they have water for uh, cold water for an hour in the morning, an hour at lunch. About it's about an hour, hour and a half in the morning. An hour uh, they have a, a about an hour for morning lunch and afternoon tea, which is dinner time. About four o'clock is dinner, and then from about five until the next morning, there's no water in the entire prison. Um, the committee for the prevention of torture has said that uh, uh, all prisoners should have access to hot water so that they can wash their hands and wash their rooms and, and, uh, and keep a level of uh, hygiene. And, and now we're talking about uh, Bulgaria, which is a member of the Council of Europe, which is signed the European Convention of Human Rights, and we don't even have cold water. Ah, oh, lunacy. And generally there's, no, generally, there's no prison in Bulgaria that has hot water in the cells. They don't have access to hot water, generally. There are a couple of places that have, have hot water in the cells, 
But generally, the majority of Bulgarian prisons don't even have hot water in the best of times at all. Oh. You, get, you get an hour, basically most prisons in Bulgaria, you get an hour of hot water. Uh, you, get a, you get like an, uh, two or three hours of hot water a week and you go to mm-hmm. a communal shower room and that's your hot water for the week. That's it. Well, Jot, you encountered so much of this stuff firsthand and that's Can what... I, sorry to interrupt you. I just want to expand on that. A, 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 big yeah. problem of, a big problem of Bulgaria is that because Bulgaria was allowed to um, join the European Union, a lot of people think that um, Bulgaria has somehow achieved some standard of civilization or, or humanity or mercy or um, modern um, understanding of criminal system, justice system, prison system. Uh, and the truth is the opposite, that actually after Bulgaria joined the European Union, um, a lot of things actually became worse because they were no longer trying to prove that they were of a certain standard. And so um, a, a lot of people, you know, we, a, every day we're, we're getting um, bombarded uh, about human rights in Ukraine, about human rights in Russia, uh, yeah. about problems in North Korea, in China, in all these countries. We, we hear about these problems, but, but because Bulgaria is considered European, uh, everyone seems to forget about Bulgaria. And it's, it's also a major problem for, um, for funding human rights organizations, civil rights organizations, NGOs, because they think, oh, Bulgaria is EU. So, uh, so what, obviously there's not so much work to do there anymore. Yeah, and, but I, I mean, before the lockdowns in, um, before the political repressions in Turkey, where Erdogan was arresting tens of thousands of teachers and professors and, and journalists and musicians, before that, actually, Bulgaria's prisons were worse than Turkey. So Turkey had modern uh, prisons that were up to European, um, uh, European uh, up to the standards of the European Convention of Human Rights, and Bulgaria didn't. So, but Turkey, uh, of course, after the political, after the military coup, when uh, they started, you know, like bulldozing um, tens of thousands of people into prison, uh, before that moment, Turkey had a more advanced and, and more humane um, and more European prison system than Bulgaria did. Jock, when you were in prison, you, you helped to establish the Bulgarian Prisoners Association to deal with, uh, I guess, you know, I, I guess on the ground or inside with some of the issues you were encountering. Can you tell our listeners about the BPA? Why was it founded? And what are the, some of the things yeah. you managed to achieve? Yeah, we, we started in 2010 uh, informally and we were registered um, through the Bulgarian you know, legal system in 2012, for, uh, finally. Um, and we started just because, uh, well, we started for a few, for, for many reasons, but um, uh, one of the reasons I remember was uh, we're sitting in our cells watching TV and it was like minus 20 in the cells. Our, my toothpaste froze. We had, we had, no, he- we had no heating. The wind, we, had to, we were stuffing um, newspaper into the windows to insulate the windows because the, the winter snow and air was coming into the cell. And, um, and we turned on the TV and we're watching the news and there is a, a guy there, a, a prisoner, uh, one of our colleagues, of course, uh, dancing half naked, you know, in, in boxer shorts and a, and a singlet. And he's dancing in the corridor on the, on the evening news saying how, much, how warm prison is and how great everything is in prison, how happy he is. And, and we're there freezing, trying to wrap ourselves in blankets. I got a sleeping bag. My, my family sent me a sleeping bag from Australia. I'm there with a sleeping bag and, ha- and hats and as many clothes as possible trying yeah. to stay warm. And we're watching TV. And this is how the, the, the prisons were being 
the situations in Bulgarian prisons were being misrepresented to the Bulgarian public and to the European public and to the international public as well. And um, so that was a really uh, 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 one decisive fa um, factor in starting the association <laughs> that pris prisoners needed real legitimate representation. And um, what was happening was that the, the it, and it wasn't even the media's fault because the media, there, if there was some problem in prison, like let's say the guards beat a prisoner or, or let's say um, uh, a prisoner died or something like that, the, the media has nowhere to turn to for information other than from prison itself. So of course they're only presenting the prison's point of view. So um, when after we registered and we formed the Bulgarian Prisoners Association, um, for the first time, media and journalists could say, "Hang on, we've asked the guards, we've asked the Ministry of Justice, we've asked the prison authorities. Um, if we want to be objective, let's also ask the Prisoners Association." Of course, there are media who don't ask us, and they don't even pretend to be uh, objective. But the point is, is that for the media, from now on, since 2012. Any media, any journalist who want um, uh, who want uh, both sides of a of a story um, can contact us and uh, and yeah and and an another another point was also because we are a big community um, in the world in Australia in Bulgaria everywhere in every country in the world uh, prisoners prisoners are a big um, community we are a, a part of society and we are a like a sub uh, a sub social group of society so. Yeah. Uh, so it's also normal that we would need our own representation and have our own. We have our own uh, traditions, uh, community, language. Um, okay. You know. So it, it, the point was was to to harness that community and actually and 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 really build something uh, f from it and for it at the same time. Well, I spoke to um, Debbie Kilroy earlier this episode who started uh, Sisters Inside, which is a decarceration initiative about, you know, yeah. women from prisons in Australia. And, um, you know, she she spent time in prison herself and on my side. And just some of their programs over the past year or two have freed hundreds of people just through, you know, unpaid warrants that put them in jail and that kind of thing, you yeah. know. but. We talked a yeah. lot about decarceration and we also talked about being reformist versus abolitionist. Do you know what I mean? Like as in, you know, yeah. do, you, do you want to try and improve the conditions for people in prison? Will you focus on trying to ab abolish prisons altogether, you know? But at the same time, yeah. so I wanted to ask you, you know, is the BPA abolitionist in its approach? But I also I, I realised what we were talking about before, that, you know, Bulgaria is in Australia. So, you know, there's a different set, series of questions. Yeah, there. of course, yeah. But, but yeah. What, what's your approach on that? Um, uh, formerly, the BPR, uh, Bulgarian Prison Association, is not uh, abolitionist. Um, and uh, because, uh, for a couple of reasons, but uh, uh, firstly, because we were all in prison when we, first first of all, I myself am not uh, strictly what people would call abolitionist. Yeah. I believe that, I personally believe that um, prisons should be so radically changed that they no longer, um, they can no longer be recognized as prisons as we see them today. So, so in radical that regard, reform, if you will. Well, in that regard, I'm an abolitionist. In, in, I mean, uh, I, I personally believe, and I think, I'm pretty sure that most of the members and supporters of the association are, are also believe along the same lines as what I'm expressing now. Yeah, because we have discussed it in the past. Um, uh, but um, uh, but specifically, I think all of us in prison, we and you know, also it's very rare for me to find 
um, prisoners who are also strictly 100% abolitionist because we are in prison with some really bad people. <laughs> like, like, you know, like when you're in prison, I mean, it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of hypocritical. Like everyone thinks that the, you know, it, it's kind of the opposite. You know, you have the English saying the grass is always green on the other side. Maybe it's, um, maybe the, bog, the English version is everybody's shit smells but mine. Um, so like, I mean, in prison, but I mean, there are some really bad people in prison that, that, that really should be there. And like they, the society needs protecting from some people. And so I, the question then for me comes, how do we keep those people from harming society at the same time as treating them humanely? And the idea, and a lot of people don't understand they, a lot of people think that you should treat bad people badly. And, um, this is extremely reactionary. The point of treating bad people good is to show them that there's a different way yeah. um yeah to show to be the you know i was always taught as a kid be the um be the way you want to see the be be the change what is it yeah. be the change, be the you, change wanna, you want to see in the world yeah. exactly be yeah. the change you want to see in the world so uh, uh treating bad people badly only justifies and um cements um, how they were living before they went to prison in the first place. It's like a dog eat dog. Um, yeah. and, and that's how it's working in Bulgarian prisons. Um, if you're strong, if you have power, uh, you use that to smash everybody around you. And that's, and, and, and that's how the prison administration works and runs the ministry of justice and so on. Yeah. And the problem with that is that, uh, of course, then there, there is no real, um, there is no real, uh, mentality of reform because all you're doing is you're teaching the criminal that um, uh, we are the bigger criminals. So, so like there's a hierarchy. So when you're a little pickpocket on the street, you work for the, the local boss who works for some national boss. You know, there's a hierarchy of, of, of criminals. And when you come to prison, you're taught that now the hierarchy is not your, the guy you are working for on the street. You're now working for me. Now you steal for me. Now you cheat and lie for me. And, and this is how the Bulgarian prisons are, are ran, is that the, um, you're not told don't be a criminal, you're told be a criminal for the state. Okay, yeah. 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 And so, um, uh, so, so, that, that's, so my personal view is that, um, uh, is that uh, prisons should be so radically reformed that they no longer represent prisons. Um, uh, I mean, we haven't got an official platform about this just because we're we're so far away from something like this. Yeah, yeah. But personally, I would like to see um, uh, some type of a, a village system whereby, um, uh, first of all, prison should be avoided as much as possible, of course. Um, uh, uh, but secondly, uh, if there was a, and of course, a lot of things that are crimes shouldn't be crimes. So for example, um, uh, marijuana in Bulgaria is still an imprisonable, imprisonable offense, which is just ridiculous. Um, there is not even a minim, minimum amount. You can, you can be caught with one joint and that's enough to put you in prison. Um, and there's no different, there's no legal discrepancies between marijuana and heroin. Uh, there are even judges who don't even understand the difference. Drug is drug. Yeah. Um, okay. okay. I mean, there there are people they put in prison for uh, for um, growing tobacco without paying the taxes. It's, it's also a, a crime. You can go to prison for for growing tobacco. Um, so the first the first thing is that the, a lot of things that are crimes shouldn't be crimes. At least they shouldn't be imprisonable in prison imprisonable crimes. Yeah. Secondly, um, 
Secondly, if somebody is sent to prison, they should be sent to a, a place that should be as much as possible um, resembling um, society, open society, normal society. And this is actually um, part of the um, constitution of the Bulgarian Prisoners Association. Uh, and it's based on um, actually recommendations uh, from uh, the Council of Europe. Um, and the Council of Europe, which is, a, of course, a um, European institution, it's a state European institution, um, and they have said that prisons should, as much as possible, represent normal life. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, so our constitution is based on these recommendations. So, and, and part, of, part of the reason for that is not only is it a good idea, but um, part of the reason for that is that it gives us um, legitimacy when we are lobbying and uh, lobbying the Bulgarian government to change their policies. We can say, actually, this is not our idea. This is actually the idea of the guys who are giving you money. So um, there are a lot of European institutions, the European Parliament, uh, the European Commission, the European Council, and all these institutions are helping the state of Bulgaria in one way or another. And at the same time, they're saying, um, we're going to help you um, with this funding or we're going to help you with this international obligation or we're going to help you in, in some way. Uh, but we also want you to make these reforms in the prison system. And so um, a part of the reason for that is because we, we were all prisoners at the time when the, when the association was formed and registered. So we can't, in Bulgarian prison laws, if we say we are for, uh, we are for abolition, Straight away, um, uh, my every my personal the personal prison report of every member and supporter of the association, um, the security threat classification would go up. They say okay. they would say you're an abolitionist. You're against the the state. You're against the prison. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so you're now a maximum security threat. We're okay. not going to give you any privileges, and we're not going to give you early release. So. Um, so it's kind of like a, like a three pronged attack. So the first is personally, I'm not a, a, a strict abolitionist as it is defined that, that I, uh, yeah. uh, um, secondly, um, uh, the, it gives us clout when we are arguing for, our change. Yeah, and, and thirdly, right. it's to protect members and supporters, because if we say we're against the state, we're against uh, prisons, uh, they will straight away punish us. It's a punishable offense in Bulgarian prisons to be against prisons. But if we say, actually, we want reforms and we want we want the prisons to become better prisons, yes. then actually the, 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 the role reversal is changed that we are, they become the bad guys. So, uh, and, and I've said this in every interview here in Bulgaria, we want nothing more than for the prisons to follow their own, their own laws. <laughs> That's a reasonable request. Well, how, yeah. how about specifically during the pandemic? You know, what are you and the BPA calling for to happen to prisoners during the pandemic? Um, well, it's too, it's very complicated, but... Um, uh, I mean, um, we had some communications with people at the Ministry of Justice, um, and uh, I mean, it, it's hard. Like, do we do we push for some do we push for some type of relief of people who are in prisons, or are we um, or are we going to make um, a request that will never be granted, even yeah. though it's the correct one? Yeah. Um, so, like, like long story short, um, as many prisoners. Um, as many prisoners who have uh, short sentences left, uh, as many prisoners who are are um, who are not in prison, for example, for violent uh, violent offences, um, 
basically, everyone should just all, all those people with with one week, one month, two months left on their sentence should be released straight away. Yeah. Yeah, that would reduce the population significantly. I, I mean, this is this is not even an association request. This is this is what's been happening all around the world in yeah. Iran, in Turkey, in Australia, in Britain, Colombia, um, even different states in the United States of America are doing this. This is a normal um, a reaction, and um, Bulgaria is one of the only countries, one of the only countries in the entire world who has not taken any measures to reduce their prison population. And they've actually done the opposite. What they did in a lot of prisons was that they made, they made, so like everybody knows prisons have different wings, different groups. So let's say there are five groups. So what they did was they made one group, a quarantine group. So everyone who is suspected of being sick is going to be sent there. So they took all the prisoners out of this group and put them into the other groups. So now all the other groups, all, so now the five groups that were reasonably populated. Now the four are completely overcrowded. And now you have one, uh, one group um, that is used as a, like a quarantine group for suspected infected. They all get sent there. And it's suspected because as far as we know, no prisoners are being um, tested. Um, the last public announcement that we know about, the Minister of Justice went on TV and said one test was made in Kizichina prison, where I was actually, and it was a negative result. Uh, but as far as we know, no testing of suspected infected people in prison has uh, been undergone. So, um, if you're if you have the if you have the flu, um, you can be put into this um, group together. You're together. Your your beds are next to each other. Yeah, they're giving you coronavirus. Yeah, they're giving you coronavirus if that person has coronavirus, and we can't even say they're giving coronavirus because no one's been tested that we know of. Uh, well, uh, I'll correct you there, Jock. There was one test, you said, and it was negative. Yeah. So that means there's yeah. actually zero. And it was a long time ago, by the way. Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that that's one of the ironies of it all, was that um, Bulgarian reports were that uh, Bulgaria had one of the least infection rates of the whole of Europe, of the whole <laughs> world, I don't know what. And my friends in Australia were saying, Jock, Bulgaria is not testing anyone. Of course, they don't have any um, confirmed cases. Like, not, like, I mean, like, you know, I'm, I'm, it's hyper, hyperbole. They're not testing yeah. anyone. But, but if you, the, the less you test, of course, the less, the less confirmed cases you have. Mm. Yeah, that's insanity. Um, yeah. But Jock, we, Jock, here in Australia, I, me, we, my comrades, we want you back. We want you free. <laughs> yeah. You know, we want you free. Yeah. It's not so much to ask. Um, so I hear um, responses from DFAT and the like. They sound, I don't know. I mean, obviously, you know a hell of a lot more than me. They sound pretty oh. much like they're just giving the off-the-shelf response. But I, also, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't hear much from them. Are you receiving much assistance from them? You know, what, what I what I have to make clear for a lot of people, a lot of people don't understand, and there's a lot of miscommunication, Basically, the staff on the ground in, in Athens, because the, the closest embassy is in Greece, Yeah. Um, the staff on the ground, they just do what they're told and they do what they're allowed to do. Yeah. Uh, and, and basically, as much as, that they, as much as they're allowed to do and as much as they're told to do, they have done. So uh, there's, a, there's a discrepancy that every time I'm complaining about DFAT, uh, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, um, the staff in 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 Greece uh, get pissed off of me and say, you know, what haven't we done? What haven't we done? Um, the problem is, is that the Australian government, not 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 just this government, all governments, have um, treated my case as a consular problem. 
where, where like a it's a um it's a administrative pro- procedure it's yeah. uh, i've lost my i've lost my passport or um you know i i don't know i've lost my passport and i need to get a new one they need to just sign some documents and take a photo and that's it and and right from the very beginning for 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 some people, not for I wasn't even I was about to say a lot of people, but it, it, it's not true. But for some people, right from the beginning, from 2007, it was clear that my situation in Bulgaria uh, was not uh, administrative. It was not um, it was not just some secretary, secretarial um, situation, but it was political. Right from the very beginning, right from December 2007, after my arrest. Um, it, for me, at least, it was clear that my situation was political, that uh, I wasn't going to get a fair trial. Uh, uh, I wasn't going to get a fair uh, sentence. Uh, I wasn't going to have a fair time in prison. I wasn't going to be treated equal under the law. Um, and right from the very beginning, the Australian governments, because there's been many in the last 12 years, uh, people ask me, who's the prime minister of Australia? And I, I, I have to look at my watch. <laughs> and... Um, so for the last 12 years, uh, the successive governments have treated my case as a, as a consular problem, when clearly it's never been a consular problem. It's always been a diplomatic problem. And the problem with that is that if, when the Australian government treats it as a consular problem, they send consular staff who do not have diplomatic authority. Yeah. They do not have the right or the authority to meet with ministers. They do not have the right or the authority to meet with um, government officials. Because at the end of the day in Bulgaria, Bulgaria is uh, five and a half, six million people. Uh, and so at the end of the day, it's about the size of, like, let's roughly, it's about the size of Sydney. And um, what a lot of people don't understand is that uh, everything is micromanaged by um, a very small clique of political elite at the very top. It's mi- everything is micromanaged. Um, the courts are infamously um, uh, politicized, meaning the the governments and the politicians they they basically pick up the phone and say, "Hey, judge, can you make this decision for that guy or for this guy or whatever?" You know. Yeah. So right from the beginning, um, uh, the successive Australian governments over the last twelve years, um, probably because due to apathy, um, have. Uh, systematically failed to um, take any meaningful um, measures the the first time in um, uh, the first time in 12 years um, that uh, my situation even entered um, a more political realm was when the um, I think it's the current foreign minister she mentioned my case in uh, in Australian Parliament, and that was, I think, um, before Christmas, maybe in October last year, when I was in immigration prison. Um, yeah. and, and so for twelve and a half years, and uh, and and of course, isn't it just my luck that it's the the liberals who did that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but for twelve and a half years, this is the um, this is the first time that the foreign minister has mentioned my case publicly. Okay. And and um, a, a, a twelve and a half years. I mean, my case didn't become politicized last year. It's been it was politicized since two thousand and seven, and yeah. and that's why that's why. And again, part of the problem with the the fact that my case was politicized here in Bulgaria um, was uh, the media. Uh, the, the and and uh, just recently now, actually, um, I shared it on my Facebook. Uh, but just in the last couple of days, we translated three texts from judges, from Bulgarian judges, 
three texts from them. One is from one judge. One is from a um, council of um, the council of judges union. So there is a a, a union of judges. Yeah. Uh, and they, they have their own managing council and they made a statement. And then there is another statement which is signed by over 300 judges. And if you read it in English, it's shocking. The judges are saying we are being attacked and the public is being manipulated uh, through the media. And uh, the judges are saying, guys, we have laws and we have procedures and we have ways of criteria of how we judge people if they are guilty or not guilty, should they be released or not released. Yeah, yeah. Uh, things should not be judged in the media. And, yeah. and just recently, they've been translated to English, and um, I uploaded one of the links to my Facebook page. The, the petition from the over 300 judges signed a, a petition basically begging the Bulgarian public to stop listening to the tabloid media. And really? do, you know, wow. do you know what was crazy? What a lot of people in Australia probably don't know was that um, so my case is, it's it's clear cut. My case is that um, uh, there was a fight between me and uh, 13 uh, men. We were the same age because that's another part that's manipulated. Um, so I was the same age as them. Uh, there was a fight between me and 13 of them uh, because they uh, started beating uh, another man. Um, and during the fight, one of them died. That That is what we know as, as facts. Yes. Uh, 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 who who is more guilty than somebody else, or do we share guilt, or or um, is somebody more guilty than everybody else, or is somebody innocent, or whatever, is irrelevant. What happened was when I was released on early release, at the same time, a Bulgarian man who was convicted for murder, murder, he was also released on early release with a very similar remainder of his sentence to mine. And he was convicted for stabbing his friend over 90 times. Oh, what? In an, unprov an unprovoked murder, he murdered his friend and stabbed him over 90 times. And he also got early release, no media coverage, nothing. Okay. No cameras, no media, no reporters. No one, no one remembers his name. No one cares. The head prosecutor of Bulgaria didn't come out on TV and say, well, I'm going to be the hero of Bulgaria and put him back in prison. Nothing. Yeah. No. So, 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 how can how can the head prosecutor differentiate between that case and my case? What, where, where, where is the um, the discrepancy between those cases and not just those two cases? Many people with um, who are convicted for much more heinous and much more horrible crimes than the worst thing that I ever could have possibly have done. Yeah. Uh, also yeah. got early release, but no one, no, because the tabloid media didn't care. The prosecutors also don't care. These, a lot of the, the football Nazis, they're protected. They're protected by the police and they're protected by, especially protected by prosecutors and political parties for a couple of reasons. Firstly, because they're connected with um, uh, organized uh, crime groups selling drugs. Uh, and um, But also, very importantly, um, and all drugs in Bulgaria are sold for the state. So if you're um, everybody who's selling drugs in Bulgaria, the money goes up or, uh, to the local police, to the prosecutors, to the to the uh, politicians, to the political parties, whatever. The whole the whole um, drug industry here is ran and organized by um, by the state authorities. First oh, of all, wow. secondly, so there's a massive financial incentive to protect these structures, these yeah, football sure. Nazi structures. Yep. Uh, secondly, um, uh, it's a major thing that people don't want to talk about. People, the powers to be, um, uh, is that they are also involved in vote buying. So when every election that comes about, they, the political 
parties, they come to these football groups, give them some cash and say, go get me um, as many votes as you can. And so then the, um, the, the next day, uh, so uh, when this head prosecutor, the new head prosecutor, when he was put into power, there were massive protests, the biggest protests in the recent history of Bulgaria. And, and of course, they didn't change anything. The biggest protests in the recent history of Bulgaria were against the appointment of the current head prosecutor. Uh, and there were counter protests. So there were protests organized in support of the head prosecutor. Yeah. And when you look at the photos, all of them are connected with um, uh, drug dealing organizations and neo-Nazi organizations. And a lot of them are connected with football neo-Nazi drug dealing organizations. Right, okay. And, yeah, and they're in support of this head prosecutor. In, they, they came out with signs saying, I mean, uh, uh, there are people in the photos who are who have murdered several people. There are they've been convicted and they've been released from prison. Incredible, uh, man. Some of the and, and, and they're going out on the streets and saying we want this prosecutor to be to be voted and to put into um, uh, into power. And then when you see these football neo-Nazi drug dealing vote buying structures, when you see the people from these structures going out on the street supporting. Uh, the prosecutor and threatening and trying to scare the people who are protesting against him. Yeah. Then you just you just think, okay, so that guy today he's supporting the head prosecutor, and tomorrow he he beats me, he he takes my money, um, uh, or, or he attacks someone. What chance do I have that the prosecutor is going to prosecute this guy? Yeah, yeah, of course. This guy is all clearly connected with pro prosecutor uh, criminal organizations. What chance do I have? Of getting uh, of getting justice uh, from a prosecutor's office that is clearly uh, in cahoots with uh, with with these same people, and and just recently now what's happened is there's another scandal here. It probably hasn't gotten much out of the Bulgarian press, but a Bulgarian journalist was beaten viciously by um, four Nazi football uh, gang members, and they raided their they raided their domicile and found drugs and weapons there, um, and. I mean, these guys are the same ones who are working with the state authorities. They they are not new. They they wear they wearing their logos. They're tattooed with their logos, their gang logos and their gang um, symbols. They wear on t-shirts, on their tattoos. They spray it on their houses. This is not something that happened yesterday. These yeah. organized crime groups have existed for uh, since the end of. Um, uh, the Soviet Union for the last 30 years, these organized crime football neo-Nazi groups have been um, tormenting, beating um, people, selling drugs, racketing, racketeering people, and buying votes for the political elite. And so and and now and it, it it like I mean it's just <laughs> what what can I say? <laughs> so. so. We, so you talked before about the difference between, you know, consular assistance versus diplomatic assistance. How can we help over here? Is there anything that we can do here to help from half a world away? I mean, should we all carry on as loud as we fucking can and constantly? Is that what we should do? Well, yeah, for sure. And, um, I mean, one of the things that is still unclear to me is what, why, what, the, what the Bulgarian government the minister of interior, why, what his excuse is for not allowing me to leave the country. So that, that they, they haven't, they haven't actually made that clear. This is not, um, 
bureaucratic. It's not an administrative process. It's literally the decision of the Minister of Justice. Uh, sorry, the Minister of um, uh, Interior. He, uh, the, who is appointed by the government. The government literally is preventing me from leaving. Okay. This is a diplomatic situation. Why yeah. the Bulgarian government is not allowing me to leave the country. And, and um, uh, Australia uh, sent some consular documents or something, I don't know what. Um, and they told me that they got a reply from Bulgaria, but they don't know from who. There's no name and no signature on the reply. And under Bulgarian law, um, that this document has no um, validity. Okay, so we need so anyone listening to this needs to start asking their local member, like anyone listening to this in Australia. Ask the foreign, member uh, they can ask the foreign minister. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, and, and like, um, you know, uh, um, party politics aside, um, she was the first foreign minister in the history of my problem to um, mention my case in parliament. Yeah, um, good on her for that. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, but, uh, that aside, the question to her is what has the Bulgarian government said? What has Boyko Borisov, the prime minister of Bulgaria? Because he, because I mean, uh, everything is micromanaged here. Boyko Borisov, the prime minister of Bulgaria, he's something like uh, a mayor of a city. So Sydney is about the same population of Bulgaria. So the, the, the country, Bulgaria is ran like a, more like a city rather than a, a large, um, country with which is heavily populated you know with yeah. tens of millions of people um so um so the minister of interior who's appointed by the prime minister uh what is what is the government's response and it's the government must the bulgarian government must answer for this not um not the some small immigration policeman uh secretary who who doesn't uh, who's just following orders because that's the other thing here is that in bulgaria uh um, the bureaucracy here it doesn't run it doesn't run according to the law it runs according to orders and actually there is a Bulgarian saying I, I don't know if I can translate it correctly but it um, there's a Bulgarian saying here that the verbal order is the um, is the supreme uh, law yeah okay yeah. so so you have you have like you have the law then you have sub laws then you have explanation of sub laws but the highest law is what your boss tells you to do this is a, <laughs> like a an ironic joke, but it's true in Bulgaria. Yeah. It's, it's 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 used. The saying is used as a um, as a joke, but it's true. Um, the the staff in Bulgaria, the, the bureaucrats, they will gladly break any law, violate any rights or laws, um, if their boss tells them to, because they're afraid of being fired. And mm. um, that's also something that happened in the prison system um, after I left prison was that um, uh, the government basically went around harassing and suspending and firing all the staff who didn't do who didn't break the law in some way or another so they the, the government gave orders the, the 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 through their different through the different hierarchies they they said to some uh, prison worker some prison staff uh, go and make this horrible thing for jock make his life hell and the guy didn't do it and now they're saying okay now we're gonna fire you Incredible. So, so this order, this order to not let me leave the the country, clearly has come from the government itself, not from it's not it's not according to any law. Yep. So we need to be pressuring the Australian government here, and people listening to this podcast need to be doing so. Well, I will definitely be asking that everyone join me in doing that. 
um, through my page. Oh, yeah, you asked about the webpage. So we have a webpage there. Um, uh, we have a button for donations for through PayPal. But the best for donations is with um, bank transfer. The information is, again, on the webpage. It's uh, bpra.info. Um, is our webpage. So people can make donations to the BPA through there. Yeah. And um, uh, then, of course, there's my Facebook page if people want to get in contact with me personally. And then, um, please, I request everybody to like and follow the association Facebook page because actually, and, uh, you know, in Australia, a lot of people, I think they kind of laugh at social media thing that it's all fake and it's kind of like a bubble. But in Bulgaria, literally right now, the association Facebook page is the only um, source of information for friends and family of prisoners in Bulgaria. The, the Ministry of Justice has no webpage for prisons. So it's insane. Like the, it's, it's kind of, for me, it feels a little bit insane that I'm doing this function, that me and the association are doing this function. So yeah. the, the Ministry of Justice makes a new order that, in, that, that, that involves prisoners and their families, what they're allowed to give and not give and things like this. And the only place where friends and family can find this information is on our Facebook page. That's cool. So, 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 so we're, we're, we're doing a lot of uh, really essential and important work over here. But, like, but I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of shocked <laughs> that, that this is, we are fulfilling this social need over here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You instead of, say, the government or what have you. That's just crazy. Yeah, or instead of like some high-funded you know, international you know, Soros organization. Yeah. Like we, we run just on donations from individuals. Um, of course, there are some far-right crazy people who think that uh, that uh, money is farted out of Soros' ass. Yes. Um, and uh, we just get donations. We, we get donations from Bulgarians and from Australians and from all around uh, Europe, um, from uh, some, even from some right-wing people and from left-wing organizations. So everyone donate because they do important work at the BPA. Everyone follow Jock Palfreyman on Facebook. And I think, are you on Twitter? Are you on anything else or just Facebook? I, I have a Twitter account, the personal one, but I'm not really using it. Twitter uh, the, fucking insufferable, man. Uh, Twitter, like the, a lot of the posts I'm making, I have to tell a story. I have to explain something. I have to write some text. Like uh, yeah. I'm trying to, generally, I'm trying to spread information about something and Twitter is just not good for that. No, it's definitely not. It's good for hot takes, which, you know, you've got too much yeah. work to do. Hey? <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, how am I going to, how am I going to share uh, an order from the Ministry of Justice that prisoners are allowed to get um, a package of food for, for Easter? How am I going to share that order on Twitter? Yeah. Yeah. Um, everyone follow, not, okay, not on Twitter, but definitely on Facebook, follow the VPA and follow of yes, human, donate to them. Ask your local member of parliament what the hell's going on. The simple question: What is the Bulgarian government's explanation for why they haven't let me let, why they haven't let me leave the country? Yeah. Do you know what their formally their explanation is? They haven't been informed that I've been released from prison. That's what the government is saying. They haven't been informed. They, yeah, the Ministry of Interior has not been informed that I've been released from prison. Literally, over 300 judges have signed a petition saying that the decision to uh, release me from prison must be respected. Like, this has never happened before, maybe, I think, in the history of Bulgaria, 300 judges to sign a petition. Yeah. So, 
I mean, how many judges does the Ministry of Interior, how many judges does the government want? How many judges yeah. does Boyko Brisov need to, to be informed that I've been released from prison? Yeah, how many hundreds of judges? Yeah, crazy. <laughs> it's like, it's like a, I don't know, it's like maybe a quarter or a third of the judges in Bulgaria. Oh. It's a huge percentage. Um, when they kidnapped me from the prison, prison with rope, they tied my hands with rope. They didn't identify themselves. They didn't give me any documents. They just put rope on my hands, put me out of the prison, put me in a car and drove me away. Uh, I shit you not, uh, 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 there was a part of me that thought that they were going to shoot me. Um, and and I said to, the, I said to them, uh, the only reason why I'm, I'm staying relaxed and not fighting is because there are uh, 50 cameras who just filmed me leaving the prison with you. So at least if they kill me, they're going to know who the people were who, who shot me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but uh, after that, there were uh, people in the legal community, judges uh, and lawyers, who were saying that the Jock Paul Freeman case is a major problem, um, not just for Jock Paul Freeman, but for everybody in Bulgaria, because if they can do this to one person, they can do it to anybody. To anybody. And at the time, I thought it was a little bit of an exaggeration. Um, and now I completely believe it because I, I because this is the this is the reality that if the if if, if they can just make an entire artificial scandal in the media and yeah. and, and, and and lie and cheat. Uh, and the problem with this is that my, my case has really destroyed what little faith a lot of Bulgarians had in the justice system in the in the Bulgarian state. And what's amazing to me is that the the prosecutor the prosecutor's office here um, they don't care. They don't care that they that they basically. It, it, I, I'm sorry to sound a little bit patriotic, but but literally they hate their country. I'm sorry. They hate <laughs> their country. They hate what their country represents because they, they don't, they, they use, they use their country for their own personal um, benefit. Yeah. And they, they have no respect for society, no respect for the laws of that society of the Republic of Bulgaria. And, and basically um, what little, um, trust people had in the justice system, I think, especially with regards to my case, they just completely sold for their own personal interests uh, of some type of vendetta or some type of um, uh, scam to um, put me back in prison. But, Jock, everything you've been through must have been worth it, though, to be voted the second most regressive person in Australia. I'm still not sure that that vote was legitimate. You think it was rigged? Well, you know, I mean, that was a pretty that was a pretty dodgy blog where the the competition was on. You know, like I mean, you know, you've you've probably I, I've I've heard from the from the reptiles under the employment of Soros that you're a hacker and you probably hacked their uh, web page and gave yourself votes. How dare you accuse me of this? How I dare bet you ran. I bet you. I bet you went to all the public libraries in in Australia and just voted for yourself at different IP addresses. <laughs> Look, for people who don't understand what the hell we're talking about right now, um, back in January twenty sixth of this year, um, the uh, far right loser blog of um, fake journalists called the Unshackled ran a, a regressive of the year competition. And that, sorry to interrupt you, but you see our, uh, I'm trying to work it out. You see our logo here. We are the unshackled. 
We are the unshackled. Look, we're on the podcast right you now. See but the actually... chain? You see you see my you see where I'm pointing with my finger? The chain, the ch- the chain for prisons, but it's um uh it's broken. I'm gonna put that in the 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 image background for this episode so everyone can see that. So we are the unshackled. Of course. <laughs> and 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 being unshackled, of course, is a state of mind when you're in prison. It is. But I must have made it all worth your while. What do you think? You know, so they voted me the most regressive, the regressive of the year. You became, you came, uh, you came runner up. This is how you and I started talking to each other. Can I, can I thank those losers for actually making this introduction between us? Because we never would have met without them. And I, I just think that that's so ironic that that as much as those people want to just hate people for for no reason. Um, uh, that actually they help us. And I mean, <laughs> they yeah. did actually. Yeah. Like, this can we, can, can we get like a stamp, like a, like a stamp, like in the, on the TV shows fail, like a big fail stamp <laughs> over the fail. They brought us together that what the unshackled have done, uh, those losers, this is the best thing they've, that's ever happened to them. And, and do you know there was a do you know there was a Bul- do you know there was a, a Bulgarian far right man and he sent me a message on my Facebook page and he said look at this uh, uh, vote you became number two see even your people don't like you and I was like no, <laughs> I, 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 I voted for myself <laughs> I too voted for myself we were selfish individualists about it what that's what those far right people want isn't it they want individualism. Yeah, they do. They do. But maybe that's so what makes us out. both so regressive, you know, is that that we're the kind of people who would vote for ourselves. <laughs> in, <laughs> yeah. You know, um, mate. Look, finally, Jock. I've been told by a couple of filthy lefty dive bars in Melbourne. Like, I have mates at a place called Cafe Gummo in Melbourne. They've got free beers waiting for you on tab. That's an anti-fascist bar here. Here, shall I tell them to put on hold for you, mate? Oh, you know, I think one of the only drinks I miss from Australia is um is some uh, double filtered rum. Oh hell yeah, yeah yeah, I'm a big rum guy as well. Well, I can't. I the can't, rum over here is not very good. It's but the not beer that is good, huh? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll tell them to put it on the bar for you, man. And I can't wait for the day that we can have that yeah. rum together. Yeah, I can't wait for the day when filthy lefties buy uh, buy me a beer. <laughs> I wonder how many beers you can get out of them, you know? That's yeah. Question, you know? <laughs> yeah. Jock, thank oh, what you. percentage? What percentage of a beer? Yeah, and what percentage will monitor it, will tally it up, you know? After all you've been through, surely you've earned more than one, you know? Yeah, I, I learned a few tricks in prison and one of them was actually uh, moonshine. Oh, did you? You learned how to yeah, make so- it? So, so, so maybe I'll be the one, uh, you know, sharing the drinks. Oh fuck yeah! <laughs> I want to get on that Bulgarian shine <laughs> recipe, bro. That's sick. Yeah. No. <laughs> oh my god, yeah. And um, Jock, thank you so much. Yeah, I really appreciate it, man. Acting first, regressive. <laughs> Acting first, regressive. Excuse me, I hold the title. I have a gold medal. In my home, I paid for it myself, you know. Next, next year. I next time. <laughs> Jock, thank you so much for your time, mate. I really appreciate you coming on. COVID-19. Mr. Mio, come to Green it all. We carry on from me.
Beijing, China. Go take your sip of Corona. Corona. Cause we don't want no coronavirus. Corona. Go take your sip of Corona. Corona. Cause we don't want no coronavirus. That's why I roll in with my gloves. I'm a mask. I'm a hand sanitizer. With my hands up and my wipes. I'm a roller tally paper. With my gloves. I'm a mask. I'm a hand sanitizer. With my hands up and my wipes. I'm a roller tally paper. Protect yourself from coronavirus. this episode of the pork and feed the birds thank you for listening i'm your host tom tanneke uh, you can find me on facebook uh, if you search for tom tanneke you can find me on instagram if you search for tom tanneke you can find me on fucking youtube you can find me on twitter um if you just search for tom tanneke so why don't you just search for tom tanneke why don't you do that patreon same thing all the platforms i'm on all the fucking platforms see you next fortnight